Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates North Park, Illinois. We got to vote for Eric. Man for you and me. We all trust in Eric. Future trustee. If you want to see the candy stripe back in the promised land, you best just vote for Eric. Cause I know who will Who's your man? What day is it, Eric? Ward, it's election day. I could vote right now. You can vote this second. In fact, oh no, you can't because we're recording it the day before. I was going <laughs> to say, I want to be on the phone with you while you vote because I don't believe that you'll vote if I don't. <laughs> I think it's best that I am supervised through this process. But yes, I. you can definitely count on my vote before the end of the month. <laughs> That's good. June 30th. Listen, we've been plugging this for months and months and months. The day has arrived. It is June 1st. The campaign, the election is live. Here is the easiest way to do it. I'm going to give you a couple ways to vote. Number one, go to ep4trustee.com slash vote. I don't know which slash it is. We you did wouldn't this commit. Before. I wouldn't <laughs> commit. I think it's, it's the one that goes from lower left to upper right. Is that forward slash? I'm going to say it is. Okay. EP4trustee.com forward slash vote will take you immediately to the voting site. Or if you just want to go to EP4trustee.com, there will be a button on the top of the page that says vote now. And you click that button, it'll take you to the voting. NEIU alumni out there, we need you. This, this is it, Ward. This is our chance to instead of just shouting from the cheap seats, on things that piss us off and things that we want to change and priorities that we want focused on and an agenda that we want put into practice. Instead of just shouting about it, the people listening to this can decide it. Now, the downside is you gotta put me on the board to make that happen, but that is what we can all do together. Well, and here, here's what we've heard. People who are into athletics don't vote. They don't care. You can't rely on the hysteric nation or even people who are really focused on athletics in general to be motivated enough to go vote because all they care about is watching their sports, listening to their sports. So this is our chance to prove those naysayers wrong, to say, oh, no, they're more than just a passive audience just yelling from the cheap seats but unwilling to do anything about it now eric you are the one who would actually really have to do things about it yes. you would actually have to spend many 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 hours in the months and years going forward to put what the rest of us want into action but for me and for the other people listening who really do want athletics to have a voice at the highest level of indiana university we have to do this little bit. We cannot be those who just bitch about it afterwards. If if you don't vote for Eric, you can't bitch about it afterwards. <laughs> and 
I just want to lay some of the context out here. There are nine people on the board. Six of them are appointed by the governor, whoever the governor is at that time when a spot comes up. And you'll you'll never be appointed by any governor. Correct. That's exactly (laughs) right. But those are favors. Like, let's not kid ourselves. Those are people who have networked the right way and who have asked for favors from the governor. I'm not saying they don't care about Indiana, but they're favors. They didn't have to work that hard to get put on the board. And many of those people historically have used the position of being a a board of trustee member at Indiana to enrich themselves in some way, to set themselves up for something afterwards, to help them get on the boards of Indiana corporations, to promote themselves in a way that is self-serving. We are only doing this because we love Indiana University. There are only three spots on the board that are elected by the alumni, by the people who went through Indiana, only three. And only two are available this go around. Yes, you're voting for two. Now I would say the best thing for us is don't vote for two people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you just vote for me, it's better for us. But I don't care. If you want to no, vote that's, for two, vote for two. That's good to know. Um, but this is it. It's like, you know, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Like, this is the moment where we can say we want priorities. We want trans- or We want priorities the way that we care about them. We care about our athletic programs. They mean more to us than just wins and losses. We want transparency at the board of trustees. We want to understand what the trustees are doing. We want them to be responsive to the people that make up the Hoosier Nation, which is the alumni base. I'm going to be that. And yes, I want athletics to take a backseat to no one, period. I want to be in the driver's seat. But I also want that for academics. And I want academics to be accessible. I want Indiana University education to be accessible to people. I want it to be accessible to everybody that qualifies to be at Indiana. I want to see not just us rise in the rankings of the AP poll and the coaches poll and the BCS polls and all that. I want to see us rise in the rankings of top universities, according to U.S. News and World Report, which is really the only one that most people use to see where does my school rank in comparison to others. And we have been fledgling in that ranking, and we shouldn't be. And we need to make sure that that bell is continually rung inside the halls and inside the walls of those board of trustee meetings. And I'm going to be ringing that damn bell loud. Did you say we're fledgling in those rankings? Yeah. Is that that, that means we're like we're like new to the rankings. I I, I thought maybe no, you were no, going fledgling for fledgling like, doesn't mean new. What's it mean? No. Now you now see now you got fledgling... well, like a fledgling bird just learning how to fly. What? Doesn't that mean struggling? Because I I thought flailing might work. A person or organization that is immature, inexperienced, or underdeveloped. We are underdeveloped. <laughs> flailing. We are flailing. We are we are sputtering. We are not where we should be in the ring. I should only use three-letter words. <laughs> Look, this is a perfect example of how if you don't know something, you're willing to learn. Yes, right? exactly. Which is, which is one of the real, real uh, uh, foundations of your platform here. Like, yeah, I, nobody who enters the board of trustees knows exactly what the trustees do and how they do it. You got to learn on the fly, and you are willing 
more than willing to learn on the fly. And when you make a mistake, not only correct course, but laugh about it, which I really yes. appreciate. And change my mind. Like I'm open. Look, I'm not going to change where my core principles are, you know, and what I want for Indiana in the broad scheme of things. But there are many details that are going to come up that when I hear the arguments from all sides and get all the information, I'm going to make a decision that I think is right for Indiana. I'm going to listen to alumni, my friends, my family that went to Indiana, the people that have listened to this podcast that have that want a voice when it comes to what Indiana University should be doing. And we're talking about everything that Indiana University should be doing. I want to be one of the nine on the board and I want to be your representative. epfortrustee.com slash vote. Now, should we know whether it's a backslash or forward slash? Yes, we should. But again, we don't know much about anything. <laughs> if that doesn't convince you, I don't know what will. Let's prove them wrong. Me and all the people like me out there who usually just sit back and just hope for a better day. This is the month we get off our butt and do something for you, but really for all of us. There you go. Now let's get down to what's been going on in Indiana University basketball. Let's start with basketball. It is visiting season. It is. We are. The dead period is over. Finally, what started back in like March of 2020 is now over. The, the quarantine, if you will, uh, the embargo on recruiting visits, both off campus and on campus is over. And with that means that we finally get to use the biggest tool that we have at Indiana University, which is Indiana University's campus. What did you think I was going to say, Ward? Well, you know where my mind goes. Because yeah, I said I'm biggest glad. tool, and you just <laughs> went to a dirt. Listen, as trustee, I'm not going to put up with that kind of gutter thinking at Indiana. <laughs> we get to welcome the best and brightest recruits in the both basketball and football and bring them to our campus. And that is starting in a huge way this month with some massive visits that are coming. And let's focus on the 2022 kids first. Sure. The big names that have locked into visits are Justin Taylor, Kyle Filipowski, who are visiting on the same weekend in a couple weeks from now. And we just got word because of DJ Jazzy Jeff Rabjohns that Jalen Hood Shafino, top 30 recruit, guard, big guard, in the class of 2022 is coming to visit Indiana at the end of June. Those did we have massive. one... Did we have one guy of that caliber from out of state come to visit Bloomington in the previous four years? The answer is probably yes. I don't remember who. I don't, I don't remember who, but I'm sure we had some top 60 visits. But you and I were discussing this yesterday. We never felt good about him. We never felt like we were really, could we really compete with Virginia and Michigan State and Duke and even Ohio State. And we just never felt good about it. DJ Carton, for example, Ward, visited right. Indiana. Yeah. Okay. Lost him to right. Ohio State, you know? Uh, Dawson Garcia visited. Yeah, okay. Feel, you know, but but we never, we wanted it badly. Yeah, well, but you wanted it badly, real bad. Inappropriately badly. But <laughs> it never felt like it does right now. And part of that is the new coach smell. There's no well, doubt about it. And part of it is that that there's three of them coming within a couple, three weeks of each other instead of one every once in a blue moon that we hope all the stars align, that the one who shows up is the one who says yes. 
That's exactly right. And let's not forget, they are still working, though it hasn't been announced, that Jalen Washington will take a visit in June. I know that's the goal of everybody involved. We don't know if it's going to happen yet. Uh, Seth Trimble is another one from Wisconsin. We don't know if that one's going to happen. But those three, Filipowski, Taylor, and Jalen hood Shafino, are massive visits for Indiana. And mixed into that is the two-week live evaluation period where, for the first time, Mike Woodson gets to go on the road and see players in person and go into high school gyms and, and you know, uh, gyms that he's not accustomed to going into in the NBA world and watch big AAU tournaments and watch kids work out and watch kids play. And I am just so excited to see you know, it's always a big deal. Like, oh, are they going four deep for a kid? Like, are they going all in on somebody? Sure, sure. Who's he watching? Where is he positioning himself? All of that is what is upon us. And we haven't gotten to experience that in the last 15 months. So and I'm and, excited. And never with a, a, a man of Woody's stature, you know, that Woody's going to walk into those gyms and every single person in the gym is going to know he's there. They're going to know he's arrived. And we are getting continual feedback about his presence, his aura, his command of a conversation of even a Zoom room. So one can only imagine when really with his size and with his aura, he's in these gyms and he's talking to these guys. It's just another advantage for IU over schools that have, you know, little guys running around like like Izzo, you know, you know, you know little, little. Little empty, empty, empty Izzo. Yeah, um, I'm with you. And let's also not forget, Ward, the other thing happening in June, our entire team will be on campus at Bloomington working out, both with Cliff Marshall and strength and conditioning, and then probably getting four hours a week of instruction with the coaches for the first time. The first time that Mike Woodson has met any of these people in person. He hasn't met Xavier Johnson or Tamar Bates or Miller Cop in person. Right. And he gets to work with them, see them on the court for the first time. And that's where you'll know you'll see this post on Pigs a lot. Any updates from practices? <laughs> Who's well, looking good? I, I wanna I want those desperately. I also want to hear about how often are these guys getting together outside of those eight hours a week unto themselves? I want Rabby to report back to us that they're all pushing each other to be in the gym every spare moment, lifting every spare moment. I want to know that those eight hours a week are merely their instructions for what they're doing for 40 other hours a week. Because I think we all know that's the difference between, you know, what could be a very good team and a great team is if they really take it upon themselves, they have the leadership, the chemistry, the camaraderie to really be grinding together this summer, not only getting better, but creating a bond that will translate onto the court, especially when it gets tough. Late in the Big Ten season, they're gonna they're gonna be they're gonna have each other's backs because they were grinding in June together when nobody had to be. Rabbi and Pigs need to do some real uh, investigation into hiring a young kid out of college, maybe out of the Cuban Center, who can hack into the Cook Hall key access card system so that we can get reports on each player when they check in, when they check out. That's what we need. We need daily, hourly logs of who's in Cook Hall, 
I don't want to read numbers. I want live stream. We just should have a 24 security camera when there's like a bald Eagle. That's about to like hatch little baby bald Eagles. We need that camera up in the corner of assembly hall 24 seven. Yeah. I don't know why Rabbi when he, when he's like walking around cook hall, can't just, you know, just throw up one of those cameras. Like you see in a movie. It's how they bug the mafia. Like he (laughs) needs to put up a ring camera. That's what we need. We need a ring camera up there. That way, anytime somebody walks by it, we get a message on our phones. <laughs> Xavier Johnson just showed up to cook off. That's what we need. And we would look at that all day long. Oh, yeah. Look, oh, yeah. It's exciting season. I want to go back to the recruits. I want Justin Taylor so badly. I is mean, he, is so he, badly. Is he your new Dawson Garcia? He's he's more yeah yeah he's more he's more he's jimmy chitwick i mean he he is six foot six he looks like he's got an nba body he his jump shot is somewhat reminiscent to me of kyle hornsby as and as you call him kyle makes me hornsby uh he gets a lot of lift on his jump shot, which is interesting because we have heard from various people that sometimes the guys with great lift, it's harder to be consistent. It surely hasn't affected him because he shoots like over 40% from three. And he's a playmaker. He's He hustles. He's got a good motor. He loves the game. By all accounts, he's a gym rat. I don't remember the last guy we had with that kind of size, with that kind of skill set. I mean, it's it's kind of like... Yeah, I mean, I just don't, I don't remember a guy that we had that was like that. Kind of, I was thinking Romeo, but Romeo was more of a slasher, not a shooter. Right. But similar build in that. I mean, this guy's bigger than Romeo, you know, but man alive, do I want this kid. I also really want Kyle Filipowski. Yeah, so, well, and the, the thing is, even about these three guys, it's yeah. a nice mix, right? Where Filipowski, 6'10", can light it up from outside, but he's 6'10". You know, that goes even further in college than it does in the NBA. Just stick your arms up and you're a real presence around the rim. And then how tall is Shafino? Six, Six five. five. Yeah. So you've got like a nice mix from all three levels. And even at all three levels, those guys, you know, it's much more ambiguous now. Where where are they going to be on the court at any given time? So it's, you know, not just about any one position, but like the balance of studs in, in all positions is like, yeah, that feels like a holistic approach to being great. And I think we learned, and I hope we're all on the same page here. I'm not trying to preach impatience. I'm not, but it doesn't take as long as what we were told it took the last time. We've seen enough examples in college basketball now, especially with the transfer portal, especially with that. You don't need four years to become a really good basketball team. You, You do not. And Mike Woodson is not a spring chicken. He signed a six-year deal. Mike Woodson wants to win year one. And when we're talking about these kids that he's recruiting for 2022, those are the kids that will be on his team likely years, well, absolutely years two, but probably two, three, and four. You, You are talking about like the meat of the Mike Woodson era is being built in large part with some of the guys like Tamar Bates that we got. You hope Christian Lander sticks around for that. Um, You know, Parker Stewart's got a couple more years, but you've got like a a nice base with guys like Tamar Bates. 
And then the 2022 class, that is your base. Like there's no waiting till next year. There's no, he's got to get in on the 23 guys because the 22 class is gone. No, that game has changed. And, sure. and we've seen how he's done in short recruitments. Well, the 22 kids, some of those are short recruitments also because he came on in April and he's, they're visiting in June. Like some of those recruitments could end by the end of the summer. Sure. Hopefully. This is the meat and the foundation of the Mike Woodson era. We cannot afford a misstep. There's and no doubt. Nobody will be more disappointed than Mike Woodson if he doesn't hang number six in his six years under contract. So six and six, sixth and six. I want a catchphrase that that for for Woody to hang six and six. Or maybe just more. six more banners, one yeah, every year. Yeah. That would be great. <laughs> banner number way. six in six years. Six in six, it's like, you're right. It has to, and and I feel like we, it has already started. Retaining Trace Jackson Davis, getting the guys he did for the transfer portal, getting Tamar, like what an incredible spring. But that, that gets us in pretty good shape for this season. But... Some of those dudes are going to be gone. Trace is going to be gone. And we don't want to have to take a step back in year two because, oh, the guys he's getting in in 22 are like around 100, and it'll be year two or three before they make an impact. No, top 60 guys. We we talked about top 80, but now we're getting greedy with the guys they're putting on our plate. They're bringing us top 60, top 50, top 30 guys. It's like, yeah, like these are plug-and-play type of guys who are so talented. With whoever we lose, we can drop in these 22 guys who are studs, another couple of transfers, who knows, and like not not ever have to even think about a down year in the six precious years we have with Mike Woodson. I saw somebody on Peg's post, imagine if you get Jalen hood Shafino, You've got a backcourt in 2022 of potentially Christian Lander, Tamar Bates and Jalen Hood Shafino. I mean, that is a big 10 championship caliber backcourt. That's a, on that's, paper. An, on that's, paper. An, uh, that's a final four caliber backcourt yes, because that's paper. three top 30 guys. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's three, five stars and it's, yeah. and now look, we know it's all on paper, but Damn it, we haven't even had it on paper lately. <laughs> so let us enjoy the paper. I love the paper. Um, look, I just think it is super exciting time. And then football is getting real exciting because football is less than 100 days away from playing. That's crazy. I mean, September 4th, is that right? Like, yeah, less than 100 days. On September 4th, we play at Iowa which, you know, there's going to be some good bulletin board material for our team to go into Iowa. And this is the blessing and curse of college football. Every game is just everything, yep. you know, whereas college basketball is clearly not like that until you get into, you know, uh, the tournament. But you win that Iowa game and all of a sudden you look to week three at Cincinnati against a probable top 10 to 15 team and then you're talking about, holy crap, you've got a college football playoff conversation happening if you're somehow able to win those two games. And those two games are very difficult, like both of them. Going on the road to Iowa is very tough. And Cincinnati at home, they're a top team. So, and fans are going to be back. I mean, it is so exciting. It seems like the roster has taken 
most of it's shaped now with the transfers that they got. I think they got eight transfers. And the most recent of which, which I am so much more excited about now, Stephen Carr, who when Dylan McCullough came on our Twitter spaces conversation last week, and we'll hit that again this week, we'll get to that in a second. But Dylan, when we asked him, tell us about Stephen Carr, what do we need to know? He simply said, he's the real deal. And he kind of <laughs> laughed. He kind of laughed with it. He is so stoked. And yes, I am putting full faith in Dylan McCullough to know more about who is the real deal when it comes to running backs than virtually everyone else in the world. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. everyone. And, and, you know, and that includes the guys who, like in 2017, voted him a five-star big-time recruit because a lot happened since now and then, including injuries out there. But that Dieland got to be with that guy for a season, knows that guy, knows what he's capable of. If he wasn't all that he was hyped up to be back by the prognosticators, he wouldn't be coming to Bloomington. You know, it's it's not a, uh, a, oh, well, you they thought you had potential back then. And this guy, not only is he a stud grabbing the rock and running it, he's great at catching it and going afterwards. So he's going to be a real dynamic playmaker uh, of a caliber that very few have made it to Bloomington. Even though there's been some incredible running backs in Bloomington, none with this kind of hype behind them. And I'm with you on the catching passes out of the backfield because – Personally, I love that game. Like just my personal taste on football. I love screen passes. I love a running back. Look, my favorite running back, Walter Payton was my favorite running back of all time. Uh, mostly because he was my dad's, you know, and, and I did love the 85 Bears. Sure. But my favorite running back of all time was Marshall Falk. Great. And obviously started at the Colts, then went to the Rams. And I was a Rams fan because he was at St. Louis when I was there. There was no one better at doing everything on the football field. I mean, the guy was a superstar. And the pressure that that releases for or relieves for the quarterback, and you know people are going to be coming after Mike Penix. And Penix is a guy who likes to take the time to chuck it far, and he's got a great arm for that. But give him a safety valve that he sure. can, when in trouble, get it out. And, you know, we talked about it last year. The difference between gaining, like, five yards on the first down like and, and running it right up the middle – you know, and, you know, gaining one, it's a huge difference in, in the game. I'm just so excited to see that style of football and we're less than a hundred days away. And I want to bring this up in a couple weeks time, we will be getting our season tickets for IU football. I want to bring this back up for those of you who have not heard that we've done this. We wanted to put our money where our mouth is. It's time for the Hoosier Nation to support IU football in the single biggest, most tangible way they can, and that's put asses in seats, period. This team, this coaching staff, this program deserves that. They deserve a full house for the first game of the year, which will be week two of the season. We bought season tickets. We're going to use the tickets to go to at least one game, but for the vast majority of games, we're going to give them away. We're going to give them away to Hoosier fans who listen to us, we will come up with some kind of fun contest as we get closer to give those tickets away. One rule is you do have to bring board ward to the game and take a picture with board ward. <laughs> that is part of the, the rules. A but small price to pay. We are encouraging. If you have the means, please buy season tickets. Even if you can't go to the games, spend the money. If you have means, and I understand these are tough times, but if you have the means spend the money to buy season tickets and give them to the 
Bloomington Boys and Girls Club, if you want. We'll give the tickets away for you. Let's get fans in seats. And for those of you that have the means, there is no better way to say thank you to Tom Allen and the staff and the program than purchasing season tickets for Indiana football. That needs to happen this year. Well, and all of these things, because we'll be helping facilitate them, will inevitably be powered by just just put up the yeah it's really the silence that helps the most because i can see the gap in the waveforms and and the the rarest uh, of commodities when it comes to our podcast <laughs> there's very few lulls in the audio waveforms um Straight No Chaser, crushing it as always. They they are the best. I wonder how many Straight No Chaser members will vote for me for trustee. One, I bet one. Steve. Yeah. We got one. Maybe two, maybe two. Well, maybe Steve could get Jerome or, you know, one of the other guys just like, well, because we've asked the listeners, please just get one fellow alum to vote with you for Eric specifically, not anybody. Get them to vote for Eric with you. <laughs> so Steve, if you're listening, there's a, there's a lot of guys in Straight No Chaser. You just need to get one of them on board. I was gonna say for everyone else, get one. For Steve, get them all. The whole thing. The whole thing. And by the way, for all of you that once you get one, we're gonna ask you to get another one. <laughs> yeah. So just so you know. Um, listen, Ward, let's talk and set up the conversation that we've got going in this episode, because it's a conversation that I feel like started back in 1987 yes. for both of us. Sure. And as formative as the Keith Smart shot was, mm -hmm. as influential as Calbert Cheney and his teams were, as iconic as Bobby Knight was, there was also something else in the world of pop culture that was every bit as meaningful when it came to feeling like a Hoosier. And that was something that was shared by millions of people and continues to be shared by millions of people. And you and I have talked about it over the years and referenced it over the years. And we get a chance to talk to the man who created it. I knew going into it, it would be very special for me personally, because here is the gentleman who is the crossover, the ultimate crossover between a Hoosier and a guy who just absolutely killed it in Hollywood. That this is, this is everything I've always wanted to be, I still wanna be, but to then actually get to hear the stories and, and to understand that this, this guy is just one of the ultimate Hoosiers, period, for everybody, no matter what you do or where your passions are. If you're an Indiana Hoosier, if you love basketball and Indiana basketball, this guy is one of the all-time greats. And you're going to get a story that's going to make you realize this guy, his, his Hoosier credentials are unmatched. And it's, it's such an incredible thing that he does you will go off and tell other people you know in the world about a decision he made, a crucial decision he made that will make you be like, that is what being an Indiana basketball fanatic is all about. 
there is simply no other piece of pop culture or book that you can read or quote that's ever been stated by anyone. There is no other thing that better encapsulates what it means to care about basketball in the state of Indiana than what this gentleman created. And for that, we are eternally thankful. And we should just let people listen to a professional storyteller tell us his story. Here comes a guest. Here comes a guest. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you know what we do here on the show? We talk to Hoosier legends. This is a legend unlike any other. This is a Hoosier legend near and dear to Eric and I's hearts because of the world we occupy and the legend he is in that world as well. All the specifics are coming from Eric right now. Go ahead, buddy. Hailing from Wilmette, Illinois, before <laughs> for three years only, before moving to Bloomington, Indiana, where ultimately he attended Indiana University, before trying his hand in the entertainment business. He toiled around at Warner Brothers for a while, time life for a little bit, before finding his true calling, penning his first ever screenplay. Let me say that again. Penning his first screenplay, which turned into the movie Hoosiers. In 1986, he was writer and co-producer. It was nominated for two Academy Awards. It is in the Library of Congress's National Film Registry. It was declared by ESPN and USA Today, the best sports film of all time, and declared by Ward Roberts and Eric Bankowski, maybe the best movie of all time, all the time. <laughs> It was, he then, of course, reteamed with the director of that movie, a friend of his, David Anspy, years later, seven years later, to make another just classic, classic movie in Rudy. He is a Thomas Hart Benton Mural Medallion Award winner in 1996. It was presented to him at halftime of an IU game, which I want to get into because that must have been cool. An honorary doctorate at, from Franklin College, the Governor Arts Award recipient, College of Arts and Sciences Distinguished Alumni Award in 2010 at Indiana, named a Sagamore of the Wabash, the highest civilian honor a resident of Indiana can get. Ladies and gentlemen, we are talking to a person who has for many people, defined what it means to be a Hoosier. We are talking to the legend, Angelo Pizzo. Wow, what a great introduction. Thank you. You're welcome. So when you yeah. look, we talked about this before. You are a listener of our podcast. So you you know we do these long-winded <laughs> you know, <laughs> intros. And here came yours. Uh, what sticks out to you as you listen to the kind of list of accomplishment and awards? Is there one thing that sticks out above all else? It's funny. The one, the, the one thing that you didn't mention was, uh, it, it's probably in my bio somewhere, which, you know, for a kid growing up in, in Indiana and, and just going to a, a lot of high school games and following high school basketball, of course, college, um, and, and worshiping these, these great players that came out of Indiana uh, to be inducted into the Indiana, into the Indiana Basketball, Basketball Hall, Hall of Fame. Of fame. You are was, right. was probably was probably the biggest honor. Well, what's funny is I have that- we saved it notes. for you. I have that in my notes to talk to you about, but I, I didn't put it in the bio. So you are right. Oh, okay. 
we will right. get into that and and what an honor that must have been but before we get into just everything about you tell everybody what you're what you're doing now where you are exactly i think hoosier fans will be happy to hear that but what's going on in your life these days well uh you know for the for the for the pandemic uh year it was it was really uh tough on on a lot of people especially in the film business because everything had to shut down um, and I had a film that I was beginning to prepare to go out to get financed. And, um, and, and of course, you couldn't do anything at that point. But it turned out to be a, a bonus for me because uh, a lot of people wanted to, in this spare time, this downtime, they wanted to develop material knowing uh, the pandemic would come to an end. And there would be a, a big craw, a desire to fill, uh, you know, hours on 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 all of the streaming channels, and uh, and and I, I was offered a ton of really great projects. I finished two scripts. I'm in the, I'm I'm in the middle of two more scripts now. Uh, two of those scripts, one will be made in 2022, and the other. Uh, I'm hoping at the end of this coming year, and I'm attached to direct both. One Great. is one is a, a much bigger movie. Uh, it's uh, and both are non-sports movies, by the way. The the the, the movie that's coming up this uh, this uh, end of the summer is a lower budgeted independent film about a coming of age story set against the Civil War, and it's wow. it, it, it act what what the the switch is. You one assumes it's a male, but it's actually a female coming of age or a female. Um, who becomes one of the you know decorate most decorated soldiers? Uh, she she became a soldier. Okay, but that's uh, that's just a tease of what that's gonna be. And the, then the other film, which is a, a, a much bigger film in terms of budget, uh, is about uh, it's a boy and a horse story, but it's set against the fire horses of New York City and at the turn of the century. So and, and you're you're a huge history buff, right? Like you yeah. love getting all into that stuff. Yeah, I do. Yeah, you, you picked that up, and that was one of the connections that Coach Knight and I had together, and and we'll get to that about how yeah. we met and and our discussions. Uh, but uh, we spent more time, Coach Knight and I, talking about history than we ever talked about sports of any kind. Mm. And, and parenthetically, he never talked to me about basketball. <laughs> and I would ask him a hundred questions; he would not talk to me about basketball. But uh, the um, the the <clears throat> The two projects that I'm working on now that uh, I'm, while I'm waiting for this, everything to set up for the Civil War film, one is somebody uh, based on the story of somebody you know very well, Eric, and he's a dear and terrific human being. And it's the story of, of, of Diamond Dallas Page, a professional wrestler. Nice. Yeah, who, who, who had a real change of life, you know, and, and, and uh, uh, I would say I could characterize the the theme of the piece as going from uh, selfishness to selflessness, and and you know that's uh, that kind of what his early life was about him, and um, his present life is about others, and, and yeah, it's a it's, beautiful story. It is a great story, and it's funny for those of you who don't know him. I, I suggest doing some googling, and you'll you believe me, you'll see plenty on him because he is yeah. a good self promoter. I will say he that. really is. Um, yes. But what's interesting about him is he reached the height of popularity in the in the you know profession of professional wrestling, and 
if, if you were just kind of conceiving the simplistic story of a person, you would think, oh, that's your climax of that movie, right? Is he becomes the champion. But the truth is that is a blip on the radar screen on what that second act was like, right? Exactly. <laughs> which is, which, which I would imagine is what drew you to it, that you have this thing that seems like, oh, that's the end in most stories, but no, that really is the turning point for him on some level. And, well, and then his life goes on to, to really impact people in a, in a real way. Yeah, I mean, what I learned uh, in terms of how people responded to the films that uh, we're, we talked about, Hoosiers and Rudy, is that it's really critical to never have the story be about the sport. Uh, and the stories never be about uh, the victories or defeats on the, the, the field of play uh, or the court of play. Um, you, the, the greatest compliment uh, that we would get from, from people who watched the movies, for example, Rudy, uh, you know, a young woman came up to me at the premiere and said, you know, I, 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 I don't like football. In fact, I hate sports and I, I don't like Notre Dame. Uh, I love this movie. That's who, yeah, and that's who you're, you're, but the challenge is you're also making it for the Notre Dame fan, the football, right. football aficionado, you have to serve both audiences. And so for, you know, DDP's uh, a movie, I have to serve the a wrestling audience as well as the people like people say, what you're doing a, a movie about professional wrestling? I, no, I'm not doing, I'm doing about a man who happened to be a professional wrestler. Right. So that's the, you know, you have to balance the universal with the unique. Well, I have to ask because I view any team sports movie, especially through the prism of how much worse is it than Hoosiers? Because <laughs> none, none are as good and certainly none are better. Um, but what I watched quite recently that in terms of just having this unbelievable heart, and yes, it's set in a team sport, but it's so much about the people and relationships. I'm curious, have you watched Ted Lasso yet? Yes, I, I thought it was fantastic. I loved it. Yeah, right. I, it, really, it really works. And 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 what they do is a a, a beautiful balancing act between uh, humor and, and heart. Heart. And that's heart. really hard to find. That's really hard to pull off. And they do it magnificently. You know, it, it, it's uh yeah. I mean, I I just saw that the second season's coming out in a couple of months. I'm really excited to see that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Amen. That's right. Anybody who is, a, by the way, anybody who just likes entertainment should watch Ted Lasso because no question know, about it. It's not about a sports show, even though it's set in the world of sports. The heart of that show is tremendous. It's just, uh, they, like you said, the balancing act is just incredible and impeccable. All right. So before we take a step back into the time machine, we, we were talking about it right before we started rolling, and we should talk now. How, you're in Bloomington. How exciting is it what's going on with the Indiana University basketball program right now from your perspective? I always tried to describe um, the, the, the mood in Bloomington. I'm talking about like going down to the Uptown Cafe and ha having lunch and, and uh, 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 just being in the, the midst of this community. Uh, e even going to the farmer's market, for example. The, the mood of the town is reflective of what's going on with the, the basketball team. 
during the basketball season. <laughs> yes. yes. And, and, I, and I can tell you that at the end of when, when, uh, when we lost that last game to Rutgers in the Big Ten Championship, it was gloomy. There was a dark cloud hanging over, um, uh, over Bloomington. And when, when um, there was this hope that the savior, Brad, would come home. And when, when he said no, there was a disappointment and a you know, concern. And then when Coach Woody was named, there was, um, I would say, it was almost neutral to it, depending on, I mean, Bob Hamill's a good friend of mine. Uh, and, and, and of course, Bob was thrilled that he's so close and all, all the night kind of the, the, the players connected tonight, the, the, the fans connected tonight really felt good about it. Um, but uh, I, w- I have to tell you, I was a little, a little uh, in the middle. I, I had concerns in terms of, of his age and his ability to recruit high school kids and, and, and uh, but every day a move has been made. And I was talking about the, the black cloud First, a ray of light would start to shine down, right? <laughs> yeah. down. Then a couple more rays. Yeah. And I'm telling you, that black cloud is gone. <laughs> it, it is, it is, the sun is shining and, and hopes are high. And, um, and I'm, I'm right there with them. I, 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 I mean, it's, it's been a beautiful thing to watch. And, uh, you know, every time I think, well, they're done, you know, that they, they, it couldn't get any better. Then all of a sudden, somebody else, you know, signs up. I mean, it's yeah. like my only disappointment now is there's no more slots. Uh, for, right. That may not stop them, by the way. They may right. keep on signing people. I know. Ward and I were talking about this before that I know there are some people who are like, let's get to the games. I'm so excited for the games. No, we don't want the games. The, game, <laughs> the games have been tragic and stressful. Yes, that's oh, right. This is, this is great. We can't lose a game and we just keep winning. Let's just keep doing this for several months. That's right. You know, it, it, it was like, uh, um, I, I, and I'm, I'm t- I, I bet you, you guys are like this too. And, and I'm accused in, in, in ways that has not been very complimentary. Uh, I, I'm always, it's always, my friends point out to me how much of an optimist I am. I'm a glass three quarters oh. full before yeah. every football. Definitely Ward. That's me. Every, That's me. Every, before every football and basketball season, um, I am think I'm looking at and I think this is the this is this is going to be one hell of a year. This is going to be really good there. And of course, uh, you know, my good friend David Anspaugh points out uh, he's the opposite, you know. Oh, well, you know, they're getting that guy back and he couldn't, you know, he couldn't hit the broadside of a broad. What, what makes you think he's going to hit three point shots this year? <laughs> so uh, but 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 right now, I, I, I got a sense that when when this first started rolling in the right way, I mean, when Trace came back, of course, that was yeah. the big one. That was the big breakthrough. And um, and then slowly uh, the, the, the roster started to solidify by by players saying they would who were in the portal saying they would stay. Um, they were thinking, OK, I think we could be a, I think we could be a tournament team. I think, you know, I think we we went to. And by the way. Let's put this again in context. I'm going to go back to the black cloud thing. Uh-huh. A friend of mine lives in New Jersey who follows the Big Ten very closely. Said to me that that he believed that if Archie was given another year, uh, knowing that Trace was going to leave, 
with the players coming in or the players staying, we would be fighting for the bottom of the conference. Mm-hmm. That's how bad this team could have been. Yeah. Uh, because every one of the four teams that finished behind uh, Indiana, which we finished 10th, um, all except uh, Penn State, have better teams coming back. So, mm-hmm. uh, and well, I'm not, I mean, it, it, there's still a lot, there's so much flux. We can't really talk about it uh, with any certainty, of course. But uh, I, I will say that what, going from maybe a tournament team, now people are saying, well, we're maybe in the upper tier, uh, you know, maybe we're in the top uh, six or something. And uh, then, then, you know, they, then they mentioned, of course, Purdue and Michigan State and Michigan and Ohio State. Those are the, you know, solid four there. And, and uh, now I'm thinking we could beat any one of those. Teams, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> we, have, we have a shot at this. We have a shot at the Big Ten championship. Why not? I, I, you know, why not? You know, yeah, we're with I mean, you. You need well, to have uh, you need to have a player like Tamar Bates uh, become uh, his potential is through the roof. And if he really realizes a potential as a freshman, and I know you can't count on freshmen. I've counted on freshmen too long. And they, <laughs> um, then then we would have a shot. We could match up with any of those teams. Absolutely. So, you know what I love, Angelo, is like you've lived in a business in the entertainment business that has a reputation for jading even the most optimistic of people, right? That's just, I mean, and we'll talk a little bit more about it. I I love how- I'm I'm definitely pessimistic in that world. Yes, I know, that's kind of my my point. It's like, we can all be pessimistic in those worlds, but I'm with you now, like my head's in the clouds. I I think it's crazy, but all of that goes away when it comes to Indiana basketball. Hope really does spring eternal. And every year we're just like, this is going to be it. We, even when we don't have it on paper, like, oh, it's all going to come together. It's just funny how this special thing of Indiana basketball does create this cocoon around us where the rest of the world and how we interact with the rest of the world doesn't matter. It's It's Indiana basketball. It's true. I will say that one of the most disheartening things uh, about, and I've talked about the black cloud, about um, hope springing eternal is if things stayed the same, if Archie um, stayed and the the press and the the team stayed, I mean, who knows who would have come and gone, but um, I don't know how I could have uh, gone to the class half full next year. Right. I, it would have been really, really hard. Yeah, yeah, we were having that exact conversation, right, Ward? It was just in, in the aftermath of that Rutgers game where wow. it, it seemed that there wasn't a lot of buzz within the program that there was going to be a change. And the reality of trying to get through another season like that, it, it was it was sort of crushing. It was like I've gotten a little bit better as I've gotten older of, okay, we lost again, shake it off, don't be mean to my children, let's go, let's get back into the real world. But the thought of just living with that black cloud through the whole offseason and through another year, I, I didn't think I could actually do it. And, and so to have such a 180 where, like you said, these people were, were uh, kind of lukewarm, skeptical, didn't really understand what Mike Woodson had been doing since he left Bloomington, but how they all so quickly started to get on the train 
and with each breaking news story of another success that we certainly haven't felt this kind of optimism since, you know, Cody Zeller was arriving. You know, no. it's it's been a long time, but we did talk before recording about the the video of Mike Woodson uh, reuniting with his New York Knicks a couple days ago when he was packing up to come back to Bloomington. Can you talk about what it meant to you to see him interacting with his players that way? Well, it, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I was going to talk about something else that relates to that. And, and that is that where I, where I sit, my seats, of course, I couldn't sit there this year, but I did, I did watch every game. My seats are right across from the bench. I, I'm six rows up. You, you know where Mellencamp sits? I'm right next to, to him on that, you know, down on the floor. And I can, I, I've learned to observe bench body language hmm. and bench energy. And, um, and I could see the wheels coming off the bus with Tom Crean, you know, and that last, because he had some of the craziest bench energy <laughs> I've ever seen. Uh, any human being (laughs) ever um but uh but the the thing that was disheartening about uh the bench energy especially in the last six games where it looked like uh it was it was like funereal uh it it was there was it, it, it there was no interaction with with archie and any of the players there feel that there seemed to be such a disconnect and, and, and I think that when, when you saw, uh, I think there were two games of those uh, last six games, you were talking about heart crushing. The, 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 the one against Rutgers when we just looked like we quit. I mean, it just looked like that was the only time I remember an Indiana team, well, in my short-term memory, quitting, just like they gave up. And, uh, and then of course, the, the Michigan State game. Oh. We, we, we scored one point in the last 10 minutes. It yeah. was, uh, uh, you just like, it, I was depressed for days after that yeah. game. <laughs> We're with you, man. All right. Yeah. Hop in the time machine. Let's go back to your childhood. Tell us, do you remember anything from Wilmette or are you just totally an Indiana guy? Totally an Indiana guy. So I don't talk us through your early memories of being in Bloomington, growing up in Indiana, in, in I mean the epicenter of of basketball fever, and 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 how you found your love for Indiana and Indiana basketball. Okay, uh, part of it was just circumstantial and geographic. Okay, and in th- this, and I'm talking about specifically geographic. Our first house was <clears throat> on the corner of Seventh and Jordan which is literally one block from the old stadium, football stadium, and two blocks from the old field house, and the uh, one block from the auditorium. Now, it's now part of campus, but right. that was a, house, that was a residence. Yeah, it's in the middle of campus now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, when I was, I was three when we arrived there, and uh, um, I, I don't remember the 1953 national championship team with Don Schlunt. But I do started, I, I know be, because some of these players became my favorite players. I must have become a fan when I was five and six years old because I remember listening to uh, the radio and watching uh, watching television, Chesty Potato Chips and yes. and, uh, and and but but here's where it became ingrained and 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 became part of me and my blood. When I was seven, eight years old, 
after school, I would go over and watch them practice. And I was such a common kind of presence there that they started to ask me if I wanted to, you know, rebound free throw shooting. Wow. So I would, I would, I got to know all these people, all these great players like Archie D's and uh, Wally Choice and, and, and Herbie Lee. I, I love these little guys, you know, like Herbie <laughs> Lee. And, um, and those are my really seminal years. My favorite years were the Archie D years. And, uh, and, and, and then, then the amazing first really big black person I saw was Walt Bellamy when he came oh in. He was, and, and the person that was the nicest person to me at all in free throw shooting, uh, who always thanked me, not all, I mean, I don't remember too many people thanking me, but Gary Long, mm. uh, you know, who was a big 10 player of the year, I think in the late in 1960 or something. Um, he thanked me. Now, the, the, the full circle story about Gary is that when we were doing tryouts for the Hoosiers, um, you know, a, a, a kid shows up who's a really good player and we start talking to him and, and Gary's his father. Ah. And, and we ended up casting him as Buddy. Oh, oh, nice. So, I didn't realize that. Yes, Brad Long is Gary Long's son. Oh, that's and, amazing. And Gary, Gary not only would come to the set quite frequently, we put him in as a coach uh, in, in the in the uh, regional championships in the Lebanon game. So, wow. Yeah. All right, full circle. That's amazing. But I, I do love this this idea of you just after school going to, to see this. So this is these years are late fifties is what we're talking about Correct. now. Yes, they late are. 50s. Yeah. yeah. Um, were you playing basketball at all? Was that ever a thing for I you? I was. Yeah. I, I played all the time and okay. everybody played all the time. It was pickup. And there were, you know, at that time it, it was so different because there were, there were no organized leagues. There were no organized teams. You only had teams that were connected. To, I mean, I played on the my middle school team right. uh, and then I will. Uh, so I tried out for my high school team and, uh, they put me in on the reserve team or the junior varsity or whatever they call it. And I looked at the people ahead of me and then on the varsity. And I thought there's not a chance in hell I'll ever be. <laughs> so I, I was one, I was one and done. This is how, this is how we end up in our industry. Instead. Yeah. We it's look true. around and we say, no, oh, this is genetically, this is just not yeah, for me. It's one of two things, right? Ward Angela right. looks at it and goes, I'm going to write about guys like that. I never thought that. And Ward, thought. Ward looks at it and goes, I'm going to pretend to be guys like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Angelo, I do want to know this. Look, you know, we grew up a, a generation after you where Bobby Knight was everything. I mean, he was Indiana basketball. He was the biggest figure in the sport and clearly the biggest figure in the state. But you're growing up where there's a different figure that is at the head of Indiana basketball, and that's Branch McCracken. What do you yeah. remember about just the aura of Branch and what you thought of him as a kid? Well, he was always a towering figure. I mean, he was a big guy and, and he had a low range voice and he was no nonsense as a coach. Uh, you know, I, I, I remember being uh, afraid of him uh, and, yeah. I, and he yelled <laughs> at me a couple of times. And so I was always trying to get out of the, his eye line. But the thing about Branch is that, that, you know, he had a lot of charisma. You know, he, he, he had a lot of uh, gravitas. I mean, here was a guy who was an All-American. He was on his own national championship team and then a coach the national championship team. So when, when Branch talked, you listen. And, and they, 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 I mean, he was 
he was in charge. And he had a very exciting kind of offense, the Hurry and Hoosiers. It was all about running up and down and scoring. And, and that was kind of rare back then. There mm -hmm. was, it was much more set offenses. And so, you know, he wasn't big in def on defense, but it was, <laughs> he always tried to get in the best players who, uh, who could shoot. And that, that was like, you know, for those of us who grew up there uh, during that time, and you you do everything you can to bring in a Jimmy Rail, for example, yeah, sure. one of the greatest shooters I ever remember watching. I saw Jimmy score 56 points uh, one time, and that was most of them were bombs, uh, and there was before the three point line, so it would have been probably 70. Uh, and, wow. and he did it twice, by the way. That yeah. was in 60, 61, 62. <clears throat> Another full circle story, by the way, is. What his son tried out, and 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 he, he we couldn't put him in as an actor, but we did put him on uh, the uh, one of the opposing teams, and Jimmy came down. It was such a thrill to meet oh, him, yeah. and of course you know this is what would happen. We challenged him through a, a three point shooting contest. He was like you know forty five at that at that point, and and uh, and and we had some really good players on on the the Hickory team. Uh, they were really good high school players. Right. Nobody could touch him. He <laughs> really? Yeah, he beat everybody. Yeah. The the real Jimmy Chitwood. The, the real. That's exactly right. The real Jimmy Chitwood. Now I because there's so little footage of of that era, and yeah. so it is it is hard for us to really put in our mind's eye what it was like to watch Jimmy play or Archie D's or Walt Bellamy. So those are three of the greatest players to ever suit up at IU could you just give us a little bit of your your scouting report on as a kid watching them play what were they like well the, the thing about uh the thing about uh Archie which, which made him so good was that you know he was six eight which doesn't seem to like be tall now but it was tall then um but he was just a beautiful shooter his mid-range uh, was his turn. He had a turnaround jump shot that was almost not defendable. Mm. And, and that's what made him so successful. He just was a, a scoring machine and, and he was athletic enough, but it, <clears throat> it was his ability to shoot honestly. And, and, but he, he had, he, he rebounded well, and, and he was just a very smart player. Uh, and everybody around him, uh, was better because they, you know, double teams came in and, he would pump, you know, to say some things never change, right? Right. We were talking about our team. Trace got doubled all year long, except one time, and he went off on thirty plus against uh, Michigan State. Yep. But um, that we're, we know that's not going to happen this year. That's right. We know that's that right. no any team that doubles Trace this year is going to get in real deep trouble. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, at any rate, uh, getting back to. Um, 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 let's see, who are we talking? Oh, Walt, Walt Bellamy. Yeah. The thing about Walt was um, he was 6'9", but he was really, really strong. And um, he was just so physically dominant. And he was also a very good shooter. So mm. he wasn't like a Marco Killingsworth kind of big and strong. He right. was, a, he, he was, he was, he had a lot of skill. And, and, and you could tell by his NBA career. I mean, he had a tremendous NBA career and you've got to be a good shooter. Um, but I, I just, re, you know, I'm, I'm going to get to a, a fourth person that you're going to talk about. Please. I, I'm going to use the term man among boys, which mm. is an overused term. I can tell you the biggest man among boys 
um, player that I've ever seen, and I'm including LeBron. I didn't see LeBron in high school. Okay, so, but um, uh, George McGinnis. Yes. When George McGinnis. That is what my dad has said about George McGinnis since I was a boy. Yeah. And among boys, George McGinnis, he said more than LeBron. George than LeBron. No, yeah, he it, what he was in the playing in the Big Ten at, as a sophomore, and he, uh, the, the the players on the opposing teams they look like high school kids next to him. Wow. He would get that ball. He could palm this ball like he had the biggest hands I've ever seen in any human being, <laughs> and he would and he he would decide if he was going to score or not, and nothing <laughs> could stop him. I think he averaged thirty plus. But I'm convinced he could have averaged 60. Um, but I think he wanted to get his other player, I can his teammates involved because he had they to would give something to Downing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His buddy Downing. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. Steve was uh, was was there too, and he was a great player. But yeah, uh, compared compared to George, George was just um, absolutely a freak of nature. Back, um, back get, up, get, yeah, talk about Jimmy Rail too. Jimmy, the, the thing about Jimmy Rail was they called him the Splendid Splinter. And, and uh, the reason is he was 6'1", but he weighed, look, he weighed like 140 or 150 pounds. Wow. And, and, and he, got, he, got his, he got his butt kicked all the time. People were <laughs> pushing him around constantly. He had the fastest release of, of any shooter I've ever seen. Now, that's why he could get the shot off. And people didn't know how to guard him because he, was, he would shoot kind of like Steph Curry. He would he would take two steps over the you know half court line and 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 no one's used to that and just like fling it, but he his favorite shot and where where he was most effective was in the deep corners on either side, and that's what he would practice all day long. He would just go into those corners and uh, they would swing the ball to him and they had plays set up for Jimmy, and he was dead eyed. He was just, uh, he was simply the greatest shooter I've ever seen before Steph Curry. Right. Mm, mm. Yeah, now, so, I want to uh, ask about a couple. I was, I was going to say about the Van Arsdale. Yes, yeah, that's where I was yeah. going to go. Okay. So, now that was maybe my favorite team, the, the, the mm. Vans team. And it was the Vans team when they had, um, I can't remember. They had, uh, well, it was positionless. It, it was a total positionless team because I remember four out of the five starters were all the same height. It huh. was, it was uh, the Vans, Dick and Tom, and it was John McLaughlin mm -hmm. and, and um, um, uh, Tom Bollier. Yeah. So all four of those guys were all six, four and or six, five, and they all played in the pros. And, and that was a tremendous team short, but they are also skilled and so talented and, and great rebounders and, you know, just all really high basketball IQs. It's almost like what's old is new again. When you're like six eight, that's not that big now. It's like, well, th th where the game's going to now is these smaller positionless lineups, where it seems like maybe Branch was way way ahead of his time in some regards. For you know what came for the the thirty or forty years after, it seems that is now turning back to where like, okay, we're gonna have one guy who's six eight six nine somewhere down low. And, and at least, you know, those six, four guys are like six, seven now, but that it's, are you, have you seen it kind of come back well, around? I, I, I think you're describing uh, 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 Baylor, you know, mm -hmm. because the thing about the, the, the thing was interesting about Baylor and I got, uh, it, I had a great afternoon uh, and I hadn't seen Bobby Plump 
in, in a long time. And we were invited by uh, some Butler University people, myself and Bobby Plump, to go see uh, a, uh, um, a NCAA tournament uh, game and happened to be Villanova and Baylor. And they put us in the seats right there on the end zone. So we were just so close to these teams. And uh, the thing that was amazing about Baylor was when they went out, their starting lineup came out. It, it looked like the starting lineup of an of a NFL backfield. Yeah. You know, they looked like linebackers and safeties. And they had one tall guy, right? right. They had one tall guy and these all these all 6'4", six, 6'5", six, or 6'3", studs. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and I, I, you know, the thing is great about Bobby, he's 84, 85. He can still break down a game like nobody. Uh, I, he's really, really smart and understands it and follows it very closely. And, uh, and he just pointed out, he said, here, you know, the, the, you talk about four out one in what they were doing was five out. So, <laughs> yeah. so what, what happened was that the, um, the, the, their big guy, you know, they'd alternate those two big guys, they'd flash in and out. And I think that's kind of what Indiana's going to do a lot. They're going to create that open space. So um, these guards like uh, Donovan Mitchell were so strong. It's all about driving and drawing the double team. And then you kick to, or you, you drop it off to the, the, the center comes who comes in if, if the big man is, is the double teamer or you shoot it out to their three-point shooters, which are everywhere. Right. I mean, every one of their positions, uh, you know, or every one of their starters could hit the three-point shot. I anticipate Rudy, uh, Rudy, Woody's going to try the same thing this year uh, in, that, in that regard. I think that's the, the future of college basketball, honestly. Uh, and that's really how the NBA has kind of moved, too. Totally. Right? Yeah. Did, did yeah. you get to know the Vans at all? They were a couple years ahead of you, right? Yeah. Um, Yes, I met them and I know them and I've talked to them and, and uh, you know, one of, one of my best friends uh, in, in college and still is one of my best friends is, uh, uh, lives in Scottsdale and sees the bands all the time. And, right. and, and when I say my best friend, he was a starting guard for two years in Indiana University. His name was Rick Atkinson. And it was in the 1970, uh, 1969-1970 when he was, uh, he was the starting guard. It was, it. it was lean years. Those are not great years. Those the, Watson, the, the Watson years. The irony is that, uh, or the coincidence, is that all of my, my love and passion for uh, Indiana basketball, the timing wasn't perfect in this right. way. When, when I went to school, during my four years in school, which was 66 to uh, 71, 67 to 71, uh, the, the, uh, uh, they, they won the big 10 championship my freshman year, I believe. And then yep. they just started going downhill and then they knew that the players just weren't good enough. Actually, the recruiting really, when, when branch left and, and, and Lou was there, Lou was not a good recruiter. He was not a good coach. And, um, <laughs> and it was a bad combination, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you don't want those two things ever together. <laughs> you know, my favorite story about Lou was uh, something that Rick told me was uh, that uh, that it, when they when they would another team would make a run uh, on them, and uh, he they he said I'd look over at Lou, and Lou was stomping on the sideline, yelling, "Do something! Do something!" <laughs> <laughs> so, so 
Um, but uh, then they did that the, the uh, kind of uh, deal with the devil by bringing Jerry Oliver in so they mm -hmm. could bring in Steve Downey and, and George McCann. <laughs> it is funny that we were doing that before. We were doing that way before it was cool. We were. That's right. It's true. <laughs> But okay, so we we had these lean years. I mean, the, the, the fan, the, the the size of the crowds were way down. We had moved from the old house, Mewfield House, to that new in between before the assembly hall. Now it's the indoor track kind of place. I don't even know what it's called. Um, and uh, it was depressing. It was like really depressing. And while I was at college, not good time. And then. Uh, after I graduated in 1971, I leave and Coach Knight comes in. <laughs> I don't see him at all. I, any I, of his teams. My dad has always joked he was there one year after you. So he started yeah. one year after, but same time. He didn't get a Big Ten championship. He just got bad for all yeah. his time. And, yeah. and he, I mean, he, God bless, you know, and, and rest in peace, Lou Watson. But my dad would just have like this horrible, just negative reaction every time I brought up Lou Watson because it just shaped his negative basketball experience in Indiana. But my dad's favorite joke is to say it was so bad at Indiana and no one cared that had he gotten up on a Saturday and the game was Saturday afternoon, he could have gone to the field house or wherever, you know, wherever that new place they were playing. And he could have gotten a seat on the bench if he wanted to, that that's how <laughs> bad it was. He's right. He's right. It was really bad. Now, keep in mind, there was other things going on in the world that were uh, shaking everything up. And, and I was I was part of that whole countercultural uh, change and shift in attitude and and uh, drugs and, and all sorts the of Vietnam things. War. And, and, and I actually want to take a step back to something yeah. interesting you said that, you know, we think about all these great players like a Walt Bellamy, you know, and we forget that he was a black man playing for a team in a time where that was not that typical. You know, Indiana wasn't filled with black players at the time. He was a rare player in the big 10 as a black, right? Player. Still, yeah. still in that, at that time. Yeah. And I'm wondering, and obviously this is after Bill Garrett, you know, but it still had not been, it's not like our country. I mean, look, we're 2021. Our country's not fixed, but what do you remember? You, you said that he was like the first big black man that you remember was, was yeah. Walt Bellamy that you got introduced to. Do you remember any like racial strife that surrounded Walt and, and other black players as you kind of grew up and watched it happen? No, I, I didn't, but I got to know Hallie Bryant who played in the mid fifties and, and, and Hallie had a successful career and uh, he played on an addicts uh, team mm -hmm. too. And uh, I got to know him. And, and I heard some stories and they weren't, they weren't positive. They weren't, you know, uh, Bloomington wasn't great, uh, you know, for, uh, for, for black players. And of course, George Calafaro, you know, the great running back uh, sure. here, uh, he, when he played on a big 10 championship team, undefeated team, in 1945, there wasn't a single restaurant in town he could eat at. And that's, 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 uh, that was Bloomington in 1945. So yeah, it wasn't I mean, that much different. Right. In, uh, in, in the mid fifties, you know, for, but I can't give you the specifics. Um, no, I just think that even hearing that Angelo, it, it puts a greater perspective on, you know, being a high level athlete is really difficult. I mean, it takes yeah. a lot of work and the margin between being great and being a name that nobody remembers is not yeah. that much in right. from people. And for a guy like Walt Bellamy to be as good as he was or Bill Garrett, with all of that other stuff that you know they were dealing with, 
it just for me puts me in a better kind of perspective in remembering their greatness and thinking about all the stuff that was happening off the court for them as well. Yeah, and remember why they, uh, you know, a lot of these great players uh, from the South would end up here because they couldn't go to school down there. Right. It does give extra pride to to be a Hoosier when you talk about George and you talk about Bill and how they weren't just breaking ground in, in Bloomington, uh, but for the conference and the country as a whole was, you know, look, which had never been the situation, uh, but that that IU has been instrumental in helping push that forward, you know, not just having great basketball teams and now great football teams, but that w- being a force of good that extends beyond sports. Because I actually have a lot of friends, especially out here, who aren't that into sports. Um, and I think I can always point to it's a place where whether it's racial, religious, political, we all still come here together and generally leave that stuff at the door. So it is it is something I'm I'm proud about being a Hoosier in all these ways, shapes and form. But even doing this show has given me a lot better perspective on the history of it and that we've been able to to lead the way um, and at least those two major sports. Yes, I, you know, the, the, uh, 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 um, I, I don't know if I should use his name. Uh, Quinn Buckner is a really good friend of mine. Okay. I named my son after Quinn. Uh, wow. and, um, you know, Quinn's on the board of trustees. Um, uh, Quinn had, um, I think Quinn had a very big, very big impact and influence on, on Coach Woodson coming here. Mm. Uh, but, but I, I will say that, um, I think it was, I think it, that part of it is that he said to me one time, this was a, a long time ago. I mean, I, I'm, I met him, I met him before I met Coach Knight. And uh, uh, he said, you know, recruiting black, black kids to Bloomington is not the easiest thing in the world. You know, it, it, Southern Indiana is not known for their friendliness to, to, to blacks. So, you know, I, I think that, that that's uh, that's it's something that uh, every coach has to transcend and 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 uh, and, and work around uh, and and try to help change uh, the environment. We, well, we, and we, we were told that just this last year with yeah, with Jordan, it came up with the video that was released of the kid at Lake Monroe, the black kid. Oh, yes, right. That was and a, they threatened to lynch him. I mean, it, it's just. Well, and even was something said to Jordan Geronimo around town in Bloomington, yes. Yes, which was right. part of the reason he thought he needed to get out of there. Right. Right. So it's still very much a problem, but it's it, I'm sure having Coach Woodson there is very reassuring to not just those players but their family. Yes, I think, and also uh, since we're on this topic, I think having two black assistants. Uh, is 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 a is a is a very big help to a lot of, of families too, I think uh, right. because they you know you, you have instead of your head coach being a role model you have three role models you know to work with and uh, and I, I think that's an important factor I really do I, I, I and and quite honestly um, I, I remember you know we're talking about the sidelines I, I we're talking about delicate you know, a, a, a delicate conversational topic here. But I thought that the, the sidelines looked pretty w- whiter than I'd ever seen it in a long time. And I'm talking mm. about the, the, the graduate assistants, the, 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 the managers and, and the assistant coaches and, and all of the, 
director, player personnel, all these different uh, people. I'm just song, but it was it was not like um, it, it it just did not seem like a great uh, environment to recruit black athletes when you looked at the sidelines. That's a <laughs> that's a really fair fair and interesting point. Um, but to take a little detour because you know, we're touching now on your years at Indiana and I wanna get into more of what your, your life was like as a student. But before that, it's very clear how you fell in love with Indiana University basketball, but clearly you also fell in love with Indiana high school basketball. And obviously it became a, a very big thing for you in your life and all of our lives. What do you remember just growing up and the, the, the hysteria around high school basketball at a time where it really was unlike anything in the country. I fell in love with Indiana High School basketball tournament. It was the mm -hmm. tournaments. That's when everything just seemed to be ratcheted up uh, four or five different levels in terms of intensity, because uh, it was special to be thrown into a pot with everybody uh, going after the same prize. So there was also in, in the era before uh, consolidations, reduce the number of schools. So Milan won the, the, the state championship in 1954. There were 756 high schools when uh, I think right now there's under 400. Wow. Uh, yeah, and, and that's how much, so it, to be specific about where I grew up here in Bloomington, they would always have the sectional championship in the Martinsville, the John Wooden Martinsville gym which mm -hmm. was a great, great venue. It was the yeah. biggest venue, 8,000 or 6,000 uh, capacity um, for a, a town much smaller than that. And uh, there, were there were 13 to 15 different high schools uh, in the sectional. If you were going to do the same sectional now, there would, there would be five. Wow. Uh, and, and some of them were like, Steinsville and Smithville and 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 uh, Unionville, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and and the reason I, I I rest on Unionville is that if if um, there were two inspirations for Hoosiers for me, uh, one was um, it, I mean the Milan story was always an interesting story, but I didn't experience that was before my time. But um, I did experience a Milan-like circumstance um, in our local sectional. Bloomington High School was much bigger than any of the other high schools. They most always won. But every once in a while, a small little school would come by and, and knock them off. And when I was uh, in high school, it was uh, Unionville. And they had, uh, uh, they, they, they had, a, um, they had a, a kid named Ollie McPike uh, on that. On that. Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they also had a, a, a great, great, great shooter who I played with in middle school named Bobby Kent. And Bobby Kent actually played at Indiana. He was mm -hmm. that good a player um, for, for one year. And, um, and he single-handedly um, helped uh, upset. And I, I, what I remember about the final game, when they got to the final game, is everybody in, in that arena was against Bloomington. It was called Bloomington High School. It was right. against Bloomington. Um, everybody was rooting for the underdog. And then when they, when they won, and, I, and, and one of the key figures, um, his last name was Chitwood. Uh, oh. And that's where I got, got my, my, my name there. 
and and I think this though. I think I think I can't remember his first name now, but I believe that he hit the winning shot. Uh, wow. Yeah. Did, I mean, clearly that moment was formative, and it stuck with you. You know, but in the moment when it's happening, does is there any inkling like hmm? Not none. <laughs> I'm gonna come yeah. to remember this. No, no, you see, I mean, I when I was in when I went to college, uh, uh my major was uh, uh, uh political science, right? I, I, I would know, I would know not even a, a whiff of a notion to, okay. to have anything to do with movies, but it is filed away, it is filed, well, away. it obviously was filed away because it, it rose to the surface yeah. at another time when I was when I was writing, but uh. Yeah, uh, and and w when I was, when I the second inspiration was that oh just to get back to my interest when I was growing up when when I when when they started to televise uh, all not all of the games but uh, they they would televise the final four, and that was a religious day for me. I mean I remember sitting down and and you watch the two semi-state games in the afternoon and the final game at night. Yes. And Tom Carnegie was the play-by-play -play guy. And, uh, you know, it was that you got to see the best teams and the best players. And that that was thrilling for me. And, of course, they played the championship game at Hinkle Fieldhouse every year. And uh, how t how tall are the, the rims there? <laughs> That's good. Um, so so uh, uh, but they they actually started televising semi-state game. But but I followed the tournaments religiously at that time. I don't think I followed high school basketball. People have to remember, you know, you were you could before the internet, um, you your local paper was it. I mean, if they didn't have the scores of the Fort Wayne semi-state, there's no way for you to know it or find out. So um, that was. I'm I'm jumping to another part of. I said there were two. Uh, yeah, no, go for it. Moments. The second one was when I was actually um, out of film school and I was working at my first development jobs, you know, those executive development jobs. I was working as a reader or Warner Brothers or just just kind of um, working assistant to a producer on a television series. Um, I went home for Christmas and uh, my I had to pick my brother up. Uh, he was at Bloomington South and, and there was a basketball game and I, he was going to meet me outside and I thought I'd just wait to, uh, to listen to uh, the end of the game and I'd know when he'd come out, but they went into overtime. So I thought, you know, I haven't seen, I've been in the high school gym in, in like seven years, eight years. I, I wonder what that's like. So I walked into that gym and I, I'll, I'll never forget, it was, it, they played Washington, um, you know, the Zellers uh, high school. Mm -hmm. And um, I just remember the feeling and the sound uh, of that and the energy. It, it was so electric and it was so unusual in this kind of way, which was you had, you had these kids who were shrieking at the top of their lungs like it was the Beatles. Then you had these farmers in their overalls <laughs> yelling at the top of their lungs and the deep basso profundo sound. <laughs> and uh, it was like a cacophony, a, a spectrum of, of sound and light. Like, I mean, I remember I said, those are the times where the big concerts were going on, you know, Rolling Stone. I said, 
This is better. This energy is better than any Rolling Stones concerts I've ever been to. If I could capture this in a bottle, if somehow this could be, you could find a way to figure out how to translate this energy and this power of the relationship between this, the people in this audience or in the spectators and, and this game and this in these teams, then you could find something special. So that's what kind of implanted. Uh, it wasn't, gee, I need to do the Milan story. I wanted to do a story about the, that relationship uh, and the meaning the basketball had to people in this state. So that you would say, if you were drawing the history of the movie Hoosiers, while the Unionville experience filed something away, that right. moment at Bloomington South, would that be the genesis of something? Yes, definitely. Yeah, that's why those are the two catalysts, I think, in, 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 uh, in, in forming uh, a plan, uh, you know, a distant plan. It was right. a plan that I thought, you know, when I'm in a much bigger or more powerful, if I ever get the chance kind of thing. But I, I never, ever thought about writing it. I never thought about, uh, I thought about producing it. And that, that was, that's really, I was on the producer track at that yeah, time. Yeah, clearly, I was going to talk about that for, for some of our, and we're skipping ahead a little bit, but you graduate Indiana, you go to USC film school, right? Right, yeah. And, and now you're out of film school and you're working for Warner Brothers and you're making your way in the business. And for the fans or the listeners of our podcast, the track that you are on is an executive track, development and correct. producing track. That, that's, that's a very correct. specific thing. Writing is usually a very different track. People that are right. writers, they just write. Like they right. just, they get a job as a writer's assistant. If they're writing for television, they work their way up that way. Or if you're a film writer, you write movies, you write scripts, you try to get it in the hands of people. You try to get something made. Ward has done this. Ward's written movies and then made them. You know, he's gone the independent route. Nobody else would make them, so I did. <laughs> <laughs> so so when, walk us through how you then make the decision as a producer, and the truth is my career kind of started like yours, Angelo, in that I was on the executive and the development track. At Warner Brothers. At Warner Brothers, that's right. My first job was, was at Warner Brothers. Were you working on the lot at Warner Brothers? I was, yeah, absolutely. That was fun. That that's really a thrill when you're working on a lot of a uh, of one of these kind of I iconic uh, uh, original studios. You know the the you know there's only like six or seven of them, uh, and and I've gotten to work on the lot. I've had offices on just about every lot uh, except mm -hmm. Universal. Uh, I had MGM one on on Paramount. Uh, you know the uh, Warner uh, Brothers. Uh, and Paramount to me stand above everything else. They as do. Far as they do. Yeah, you know, they really do. Yeah. Um, so how do you make the decision to kind of leave that good track that you were on? You go to Time Life, you're you're a big executive, I think executive vice president of production and working on, you know, movies, making good money. Walk us through the decision point in leaving that to go write this movie. Okay, there were a couple of steps. And 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 they again they became weirdly circumstantial and and uh, serendipitous or whatever um, you know roads taken or not taken kind of uh, I I was um, I was in a job that I really enjoyed it was uh, we were uh, uh, independently financing through Time Inc uh, major motion pictures I worked on Fort Apache the Bronx with Paul Newman and. Uh -huh. uh, and, and supervised production of They All Laughed with Peter Bogdanovich. Um, wow. 
and um, it was great. I, I and I really had worked for six years to get to the position where I knew what I was doing. But yet I was still learning. I was learning a lot at the side of directors like Marty Ritt of, of you know Port Apache, and then. Um, it was at that moment that I, I went to the, the, not at the moment, it was during that last year that I went to the president of our company and I said, uh, I really would like to develop a, a movie about high school basketball in Indiana. And he said, go for it. You know, that sounds good to me because I did the pitch. I, I, I don't think I even pitched a Milan story. I just, I, again, I, I pitched the world. And uh, he said, I'll know you'll figure out the story. So at that time, uh, breaking what year away. is this, Angela? What year this is, is this? 19, uh, 1980. Okay. 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 And um, Breaking Away had just come out. And mm. uh, Breaking Away was actually a very interesting influence on a lot of the, decision, the decisions I made about Hoosiers. And one is that, um, it, you know, I, I, uh, I have nothing but good things to say about Breaking Away. I thought it was a brilliant screenplay. I got to know Steve Tessich uh, well. He was, uh, you know, a wonderful man, uh, and uh, he won the Academy Award for that, and, and well deserved. But um, I grew up in Bloomington. My only beef with that was that I didn't recognize any of those people. They they weren't the people I grew up with. That the, the stonecutter father who worked in Bedford. Yeah. He 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 sounded like he was from upstate New York. It wasn't mm -hmm. just the accent. There was like a lot of things that were off about it for me. It didn't capture Southern Indiana. It did not capture Bloomington in 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 terms of casting uh, more than anything else. And um, and I talked to Steve about that afterwards, and, and he said, "Well, you know, the 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 director Peter Yates had never heard of the state of Indiana when he took the job. <laughs> now, he was British, right. so he wasn't casting to location." And, and, and the truth is about breaking away is it, 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 removing the physicality of the, of the, uh, of the, the campus and, and the surround, surrounding Stories. environment, you could, you could place that same movie in any college town and it would work just as well, okay? I had in mind doing a movie about Hoosiers where the, the state of Indiana and, and everything in it uh, had to be exactly right. I wanted to make sure I was like weaving this this fabric, uh, you know, th this great rug, and I wanted uh, uh, everything to 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 line up the way it really was. So when people who would watch the movie like myself wouldn't have the same reaction I had to breaking away. Yeah, that's it. That's the way it is, and that's the way it was. Yeah, I so, know that. I know that barber. Yes, exactly. That. That's exactly right. <laughs> yes. So, uh, and that's why we wanted to shoot it there and, and cast all the small parts, cast all the kids there. We wanted to do, uh, when I say we, at that point, that's what I had in mind. So uh, uh, again, it was just a, an idea about a screenplay. So what the reason I mentioned all this is I decided I wanted to, I had to have somebody from this, from Indiana to write it. I didn't want somebody who was from somewhere else to go do research and try to figure right. out. I wanted, I wanted somebody who knew in their bones how people walked and talked and chewed gum, you know, here in, in this state. Um, and so um, I actually called, you know, the agents that I worked with at the various agencies and they sent me a bunch of samples of writing and nothing, nothing clicked for me. And, and, um, 
it was just around that time. And I remember so specifically what the time was, and I'll tell you why. It was in the uh, March of 1981. Um, <laughs> time Inc. decided to go through a um, structural reorganization of their media um, companies. <clears throat> so they, because of the consent decree, it's a more complicated story than I'm gonna let on here. And it's not worth going into, but be, they had to disband the film production unit. Um, and um, then they reallocated their resources into HBO and TriStar. But the TriStar uh, part of which was three different companies uh, that came together again to get around the consent decree, uh, a lot of complicated uh, history of the industry not worth going into. The but, bottom but line was jump in for one second, just yes. to give some context. When you refer to the consent decree, you mean this rule that went into place that was trying to deconsolidate power. In what this it meant was that you there was a rule for many years that the 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 company that um, uh, that made the movies could not distribute them. Right. They, mm -hmm. It was really trying to guard against, in, in the best case, it was trying to guard against monopolies. That's exactly and right. It was trying to guard yeah, they, against somebody owning every step of the chain. Right. And so what happened was HBO was the only cable company that was existing. So they got everything. And <clears throat> in order to, to try to go up against HBO, the other studios put together a, a, a premium channel, uh, a, 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 another a pay channel called Premium, and um, and HBO felt that they were going to be uh, uh, you know cut out, so they they filed a suit against Premium, uh, the other studios, and the and the compromise was well you're making films directly for your own HBO, you can't do them anymore if you're going if we're going to stop the use the consent decree against them. So we got way more into the weeds than I admit, but I know, that's but, exactly uh, what but it was. I'm fascinated. We, okay. Yeah, we, we're, we're listening. <laughs> okay, so um, it was at that point that I was offered a job at HBO and HBO at that time really wasn't, they were making document, a few documentaries here. They weren't really wasn't, they weren't doing much. They planned to do a lot more. And, and of course they did. Um, or uh, they would pay my contract out in full, which was nine months uh, of, of money. and. I actually went and I interviewed with uh, the the pre I knew the president of HBO. It, it was uh, we did not get along. It was not a good mix, and and <laughs> so I um, I took the money and I was financially independent for the first time in my life. And it, and I and I was literally negotiating this final deal when Indiana gets to win the regional championship and go to the final four in Philadelphia. And, a, and a, one of my best friends lived in Massachusetts, came driving down and we drove to Philadelphia and we watched Indiana win the national championship, wow. North Carolina. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had to get back. I, 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 I was trying to figure out how to get back to New York to get on a flight out. And I was talking to the team doctor who was one of my dad's best friends. My dad was a doctor too, uh, Brad Bamba. Dr. Bamba, sure. and I said, you know what? I need. I, I really. I would. You guys, there's nothing like Bloomington, Indiana, after winning the national championship. I would give anything to go back with you on the team plane. He said, "Come on!" So I went with the team on the team plane back to Bloomington <laughs> and partied for three days, you know, riding the wave. It's I such got, a wave. I, I've got to take one half step back here because. 
like you said, your timing of becoming a fan was in between Indiana's last championship, 53, and obviously a long time before the 76 title. Right. So just real quick on the 76 team, where were you when that happened? I was watching it on television in Los Angeles. Okay, you know, but I, I felt, I felt, uh, I felt, uh, no, I'm sorry. I was in Bloomington. I, okay. Yeah, I, you know, I was watching in, in my friend's home in Bloomington, Indiana, but I was, it was television. Okay. And, and, and of course, I do remember the, you know, uh, 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 show Walter Fountain and, and everybody swimming in it and going nuts and crazy. And yeah. But that now was, you're on the uh, team plane? What on is the team that plane. like? Yes. <laughs> Well, there, like? there, they had two planes, so let's, I, I don't want to get, 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 you know, try to, I don't want to try to embellish the story untruthfully and say I was with the players. It was with the, the support staff. It was okay. with the, medic, you know, the, the trainers and the, and the, and the, the managers and, um, and, uh, but, you know, it was still fun. It was, yeah. it was, a, it was a chartered <laughs> flight. And, uh, and so we get back to um, um, Bloomington and I'm thinking about how do I, uh, uh, I'm thinking, I, I decided I'm not ready to dive back into the, the world and, and, and look for another job. And I'm trying to, you know, I, I don't really have to because I have finally have some money to live off of. And, uh, and I started to think about what I would do next. And I was thinking as a producer, you know, maybe I can get a job as an independent producer and I can develop this movie about high school basketball. And, uh, and I thought my first inclination was, of course, was to do the Milan story. So, uh, I, I'm, so I drove down to Versailles, uh, which is the county <laughs> seat of Ripley County where Milan is. And I went through, uh, it took me all day, went through the microfiche of the, of the newspapers mm -hmm. from 1953 and 54, making copious notes just details about, you know, restaurant menus and, and things that I knew would add color and detail to. And I was doing this for the writer that I was eventually going to hire. It was not, <laughs> I was not thinking about it. While I was there, I found out that uh, one of the players still did live in Milan and he had a feed and chick store. And um, it was uh, Gene White. He was the center on the team. Center at 6'2", by the way. <laughs> and, um, People do forget that um, th how this is how good Milan was. I'm just going to throw in this. He was a center at six two. That was the tallest uh, player. They beat Oscar Robertson's team in the semifinals that year. Wow! And Oscar played guard at six five. Okay, <laughs> and they didn't just beat them; they beat them by like twenty. Wow! Okay? They pounded them, and that Oscar Robertson team, of course, those next two years were undefeated. They they right. won the two state championship teams. Uh, two eight championships. So as I and I started to in, I interviewed the um, the uh, Gene and, and one of the things that I learned in my basic screenwriting class is the essence of all drama is conflict. Okay. So the first series of questions I asked him was, did everybody get along? And uh, you know, was there any problems? Any difficulties? Said. Oh, we all started playing together in, uh, you know, in grade school. We were like brothers. We said, yeah, no, no, we we all got along really well. And I said, what about the coach? You know, were there, you know, issues? That any with, you know, everybody get along with the coach? Oh, we all loved him. And he all, lo he loved all of us. And it was all, you know, and I'm thinking this <laughs> could be the most boring movie of all time. Okay? <laughs> this is like, <laughs> and, uh, 
And I said, there has to be one guy who was like just a little bit of a rebel or a renegade. He thought and he thought, he said, well, Bobby Plump would show up late for practice and they, they made him run laps. And again, I'm just <laughs> thinking further into the hole of, I can't do this movie. I don't, I, I can't do the real Milan story. So that's when I started thinking, what if I just make up all the characters and, and make it, call it a different name and just do kind of the things that, I'm, that appeal to me about the Milan story, I will transmorgify them into a fictional version of it. And so as I was driving home, I started to put together some, a scene and a couple more scenes and think about who the characters were. And then when I, I talked to my dad, it was like, uh, he said, uh, you know, maybe you should try writing yourself. I said, you know, I've always hated writing and, and I'm not a writer. I, 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 it just, it's so lonely a profession. And I really enjoy the interaction, social interaction of these jobs, of the kind of jobs that I'm doing. And, uh, and he said, well, he said, we have our, you know, summer cabin up in uh, Lake Michigan, if you want to try it out, you know, you got nothing to lose. So I just said, oh, that's when I decided I was getting, try my hand at it. And I, I drove up to our summer cabin and uh, I will say this, it was very much like the shiny. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, it was two weeks of hell. It was, it was a horrible, horrible experience. I think I came out of there with probably less than 10 pages because <laughs> I would read something and then I'd, I'd write something and I'd read it and it would be like, this is terrible. I mean, I, I just tore it up, threw it away and I quit. I did not do it. Uh, and I, I said, and I told my dad, I tried, you know, I got to go back and, and get another job. And, and uh, so I, I flew back to LA and again, this is totally serendipitous that I happened to run into um, a writer who I had tremendous respect for. He was, he was the creator of the first TV show I worked on. And he was also not only a, a brilliant screenwriter, but he was a novelist too, a, mm -hmm. a real writer, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, he always thought that I had, I had a writer's sensibility and I never could figure out what that meant or why. But uh, it was at that point that he said, and I told, I shared with him, oh, you guess what? I tried to write a script and it was a, like a disaster. <laughs> and he said, well, what, what, you know, he tried to, well, describe the, why it was a disaster? And, and he said, well, you can't be the judge of your own material. He said, look, here's the thing. You have worked as a, um, like you function as an editor. You give notes to other people's screenplay. Okay. So the left side of your brain is really strong muscle. You know, and that's going to be your dominant muscle over your right side of your brain, the creative side. And he said, and but every writer struggles with that. He said, you should try the Vladimir Nabokov method. And I, I said, what's that? He said, Vladimir Nabokov, when he starts writing, he never rereads a single word that he's written until he gets to the end. He said, because he would, it would be a failure of nerve. Uh, if he read what he wrote, because yeah. he is his wor own worst uh, judge. You get in your own way. You get in your own way. And he said that, that you can't ever get into a flow and you can't even, you know, what, where your greatest skill that you have to learn and to train is to be a storyteller. You have to, and you, if you go back and keep rewriting and rewriting, you're not going to get a narrative flow. You're not going to get a sense of the momentum of the story and the development and, and evolution of the characters. You just go, you just let it go, open the vein and let it go. So I, I, uh, 
I, I thought I went back and got my papers and I sat down and, and, uh, and I let it flow. And I, and I, I wrote a 196 page first draft. <laughs> a limited most, series. Uh, most, for people who don't know, most <laughs> scripts um, that are between 110 and 120. Our, sh our shooting script for Hoosiers is 117. Um, and, and, uh, and also say parenthetically, I'm now probably writing my 39th or 40th script. Mm. I still use the same method. I really? never reread anything I've written. Okay, ever, so now like, to the end. But like outlining, you have outlining. Oh, you, I you hate outlines. Your... No, I don't do outlines. No, I, I, they're the death of me. They're the straitjacket. They they ruined uh, you know they they ruined discovery. And mm. and, and here's here's one of my uh, an example of why you you so for Hoosiers, I was trying to figure out a way to for the coach to connect with the players and and I and they had to be different ways they couldn't all be the same way and and I thought well you know what if I I, I had a really good friend in in um in high school uh, and in, uh, we're good we're still good we're still friends he was a, a great player at, uh, at Indiana a football player but he had a he had a father who would show up drunk at his games his uh, middle school games and mm. and it, it embarrassed the hell out of him and and I thought that's a pretty good, interesting device. So when I wrote that scene, I was only planning to use the shooter character strictly as a device. He was not going to be a real character in the movie. Mm. Uh, he was just going to be one of these guys who show up and embarrass his son and then disappear again. Okay. And but when I wrote the scene and uh, there was an interaction between the coach and shooter something happened that was weird. It was almost like um, they connected. It was like a, their shadows connected or something. I, you know, I don't want to overanalyze it, but it felt right. And the voice, his shooter's voice, and you know, if you've written a word, you know, that's one of the key factors is to find your character's voice. And you can't do it in outline because an outline, they're stick figures, they're a collection of characteristics, but they don't become real until you give them a voice and they have their own distinctive way of of talking and expressing themselves. And I decided as an experiment to do another scene with them. And I'd say, well, maybe he was a great player and he fell, fell on bad times. Mm -hmm. So I wrote that scene in the, in the cafe uh, between coach when, when he talks about his past and I couldn't keep Shooter out of the movie. Uh, it was mm -hmm. like, he became such a dominant figure and, 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 and look, this is a part that got an Academy Award nomination yes. for Hopper. And if I had done an outline, that character would have never existed. Mm. All right. So look, the movie is filled. And we're, we're not there yet on the movie being made, but, but I'm talking about the writing process here. It is filled with classic lines. I mean, classic lines. And I'm, I want to bring up two i'm sure more will come to me but there's two that i'm just curious do you remember when you wrote this line and when you wrote it do you remember thinking oh that's good like this is going to be one that people remember for example let's start with i play coach stays he goes i go do you remember when you came up with that line I do not remember anything uh, about when I came up with any of these lines, but I can tell you my thought behind that line. Yes, please. And my thought behind that line was Jimmy Chitwood is a 
and and the re there was a there was a purpose behind cast <clears throat> be, uh, writing that character who is basically I think he has two lines in the entire three lines in the entire movie. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and, and and that was because I wanted to find the best shooter in Indiana, not worry about giving them. You know, you can you expose a, an amateur actor by giving them dialogue. Right. So they don't have to speak; they can just be. So you made you that decision it. in the writing process. You were like, "I know that this guy's going to be my hero basketball player, yes. so I can't give him a bunch of lines because That's I don't right. find." That's oh. right. <laughs> yeah, no, but that was for the entire team. I, there wasn't one player uh, right. one, that got more than three or four lines because we wanted to cast real players and not have to worry about the heavy burden of of acting. Okay, can, and can and, I? Because can I end? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to inject that, Angelo. I don't know if you're still on the board of the Heartland Film Festival, but I that's thought. where that yeah. that was where. Uh, my first film debuted, premiered, and I set it all in Peru, where I'm from, and shot it in Peru, in the Peru Circus. And I'm not sure if you're familiar at all with that. Kathy Day. Kathy Day, wonderful yes. writer. And re really great novel about, right? The Circus. Oh, the yeah. Circus in Winter yeah. is an yeah. incredible story. And she had to do something similar. Instead of setting it in Peru, Indiana, she, Lima, Indiana. So yeah. she could do her own thing with the actual history of Peru. But I, I had a couple of Hollywood actors to, to play my leads, but I wanted to have clowns because he's like a clown who is down on his luck and had to come back home to sort of redeem himself. But I wanted to use people in the Peru circus. So with the clowns, it was just like, well, they're, they're all silent. They all, and that yeah, was also how to get, that was how to get around the SAG stuff too. Yeah, Cause I yeah. couldn't afford a bunch of SAG actors. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's one of those ones where you kind of have limitations or parameters by wanting to do something back there. But then you, it inspires something else, a creativity within those limitations. So I look back when I when I I, I remember uh, I was such a big sports I'm such a big sports fan and I watched probably every sports film that got made, and you know and I'm sure you share this with me how easily you can be sent out of a movie when you see an actor who cannot when you see Robert De Niro throwing a baseball and oh. banging the drum solely, <laughs> Jimmy Pearsall throwing a baseball. You know, I, I'm sorry, um, and and I've gotten to know golf golf really well because of my son uh, is is a you know competitive golfer and uh, and and but way before that I, I was I've been a golf freak all my life not a good player but a, a golf freak I I couldn't watch Tin Cup I couldn't watch that mm -hmm. swing you know he's he's yeah. not a, a, a elite I'm with you. he's not an elite work. level player so so we know how Chitwood came about we know how Shooter came about. Talk to us about coach. Talk to us yeah, about so so yeah. Uh, um, that was I. I needed to find a, a story about. Um, okay, let's go back. This is this is for your curiosity. I think you guys. I'm going to do a special thing for you. You too. I'm going to send you that 101st, 194-page script. Oh, please. and it will blow your mind. Will you see how different, how much it's there? Uh, but in such a, and I mean, I don't pick a single point of view. So I'm, I'm telling a romance between one of the cheerleaders and Buddy, and I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I just wanted to get everything out there. Sure. You know, I did, and yeah. then I knew, I knew, of course, I knew I was going to cut it down. 
But in my first go ahead, one of the things that was interesting to me about the Milan story was that their coach was 26 years old. This was his first job. Wow. So I thought, well, so in my first draft, he was 26 years old. Wow. And and I kept and and there was something about it that didn't work. And 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 I was really struggling with what it didn't work. And I realized that, you know, hey, if this guy fails, he's got the rest of his life. There's nothing really at stake here. And I just so happened to, to be watching Max Sledge and Tender Mercies, the Robert Duvall role. Mm -hmm. And I loved the kind of uh, how laconic he was. He, he was a deeply tortured guy, but never talked about his feelings. And I thought that's, and, 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 and I had heard, and I gotta be very, very careful about this, this uh, next part of the story that I'm telling you. But there was a rumor um, about a certain coach hitting a player and, 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 and the, the family uh, getting paid off and the, and the coach staying. And I wondered what would have happened to that coach if in fact um, the, 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 that wasn't taken care of. He, he would never be hired again at another university. And, and you know, what would he do with this brilliance? You know, he would go into a hole. And, and I thought, I wanted to create a circumstance where this was a last chance uh, for a player who had uh, had who had done something and messed up. He had hit a player, right? And uh, so that was my that was my instigation for that character. And then I wanted to really tie it into my aesthetic of, of, of basketball at that time, which was completely organized around Robert Montgomery's night uh, basketball you know, which was four passes before a shot. It was all those things. That was it. I tried and I tried to think about Bob Knight playing that role uh, and somebody who had to deal with the temper, somebody who, uh, you know, how he would teach defense, how he would teach offense. And I had so much of, of Coach Knight's uh, 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 way, because I listened to, read everything. Let me just throw a parenthetical in here. This is how much I remained a fanatic about high school, about Indiana basketball. When I was in Southern California, of course, you know, they, they might have televised three games a year that I got to see them. And I wasn't going back and forth to Indiana, uh, and uh, but I I was desperate to follow Indiana, so I got a subscription to the Herald Telephone or the Herald Times now, but the Herald Telephone then, where uh, the great Bob Hamill would write article after article, two articles a day about you know the basketball team, and I would get a huge bag of newspapers once a week of the Herald Times, and I would sit down and I'd read through them. Wow. So I actually got to know his manner of speaking. Bob and 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 Coach Snyder, you know, best friends, and yeah. so he captured his voice. I tried to find that voice and put it in that character. Mm. I tell you how much how close it was. <laughs> I, I got two two examples of this, which is one is Tom Abernathy, who uh, I knew his brother well. He's a fraternity brother of mine. I thought we needed somebody who had legitimacy to help us. Um, help me with the, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to get a hire him as a consultant once we got the green light to make the movie, both to read through the script and also 
to help us pick the players. And we had an open tryout in Indianapolis. Well, he read through the script and he said, uh, you, uh, you, uh, you, I, my name can't be on this. There's just too much of Coach Knight in here. You know, <laughs> this is like, uh, this is like, oh, no, no, I can't. Because, and, you know, and he was worried about, you know, the, the fact that the coach had hit a player, you know, before he was, I mean, all of these players are still scared of him, you yeah. know, yeah. years later. And um, he was particularly when he was still a force of nature back then. Uh, so that was number one. And number two, I have to end up telling you this story. Okay. Well, we're going to get to this one way or another. Um, should I, should I launch into this? This is kind of long. It's yes. a little bit long. Oh, that's what we're it, here it, for. It, it speaks to the, the dialogue of coach Knight's dialogue. Please. Okay. Now, 1987 was a, a very special year. You say 86, but the Hoosiers came out and actually only in Indiana in the, in the, uh, it there was a platform release. Our studio distribution company, Orion, did not believe that we had legs nationally. They thought it would only work uh, in Indiana. And they figured if it didn't work in Indiana, then they, they would give it a national release. Well, it did well, of course. And they gave it a limited national release on January 7th, I think we're like 400 screens. It, it built and built and built, you know, so by the time uh, it was March, we were uh, in, uh, close to a thousand screens still. Those were different days then. Sure. Um, and uh, of course, Indiana um, uh, gets to the final four and, uh, and, and, and uh, India and uh, Hoosiers uh, is nominated for two Academy Awards. Well, it turns out that the Academy Awards and the uh, final game are in the same night, oh. and and this is this is the most like, uh, and I'm freaked out. But the <laughs> only thing that assured me was that um, that was that Indiana played UNLV in the afternoon, and they were, I think, underdogs. I think UNLV they they were underdogs. UNLV yeah. was was a was they were number one in the country. They were mm -hmm. a big favorite. So I thought there's not, I'm not going to really have this as a as a problem at all. Um, <laughs> by the way, uh, uh, by the way, before that, Joby Wright and uh, was a college friend of mine, and maintain we we maintained friendships throughout the years. So I, uh, I uh, David and I came up with an idea. Uh, we called Joby. He said like we'd like to send a uh, a poster of Hoosiers to you and put in the locker room uh, in New Orleans. So David and I signed, this is the year of the Hoosiers, okay? And, uh, and they actually did. Coach Knight said, okay, he put it up. He nailed up the, to the, to the wow. locker room there. Indiana wins, UNLV, okay? Um, going to the national championship. I'm freaking out. I, I, can't, <laughs> I, I cannot, I, I cannot uh, handle it. And, um, uh, and, and I and I'm, I'm talking because the two nominees are Jerry Goldsmith, who did the music, and and Dennis Hopper, and and Dennis comes up with an idea that that in rehearsal he'll bring. Remember those Sony Watchmen? Yes. You know the little thing. So he yes. was going to bring in to see if it worked. And I was because we had seats with them. We had touches and the limo and the whole the party circuit. We had it all. And uh, uh, and. Uh, so he brought the watchman in on Sunday and said, you know, too much electronic stuff. We, I can't get anything here. Mm. So on Sunday night, I remember talking to David. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm, this is killing me. Uh, and he said, well, you know, we may never get a ch another chance. We got to go and so on and so forth. And 
I woke up, I, I, I had a really literally sleepless night, Sunday night, and I got up Monday morning and I knew my decision. We're staying home and watching the game. We are not going. We are, we are, we are going. <laughs> okay. I so, mean, this is, so, this is so, nuts, Angela. This is, so, this is so, nuts. And, and Dave, David said, okay, if you're doing it, I'm not going to go by me. No, I'm, I'm with you. I'm right there. Okay, so during that day, uh, and, and and this is the this was a visual this is visual aid that I wanted to show you, and yes. I, I will do it in a second, which is that um, I got a call from a Herald Times reporter asking me, well, you know, gosh, what are you what are you going to do? I, we know your passion for Indiana basketball, you're you're uh, you know, but you're going to the Academy Awards, and, and I said, yeah, we we decide we're staying home. So they they uh, they wrote an article. Okay, about that. So, so uh, you know, uh, we had the we had the television on uh, two TVs, one in the Oscars, one in the game. Of course, I don't pay any attention except for when our nominee our our uh, sure. categories are up. We're totally focused on the game and Key Smart, the whole thing. We end up going to the parties afterwards anyway, and we really celebrated in a way that no <laughs> no, no one else winner you know could match. They're like yeah, Dennis, Dennis and Dennis. Why are you celebrating? You yeah, lost. Yeah, no, that's you right. Lost. Dennis and Jerry are kind of so bummed. Yeah, they say, "Why are you so happy? You're losers." Anyway, so uh, uh, the next day, and this was according to Joby. All right, the Herald Times has a. Uh, front page, and I have a facsimile of the front page right here. Uh, yes, I have this hanging in my office. Okay, maybe you haven't noticed. At the bottom, it says Hoosiers creators. Oh, what's <laughs> IU, not Oscars? Yes, okay. yes. <laughs> Now, That's it. Uh, I've yeah. never noticed that. I have that. I got it from the Herald Times. And yes, it's right. No, wow. yeah. Nobody so, can ever top that as saying, this is how committed of an IU fan I am. You win forever. Okay. So so it, what happens is that Coach Knight is reading uh, this the, the front page, and he looks down and he sees it. He said, are these the same guys who did? I mean, you know these guys, right? To Joby. He said, yeah. He said, Wow, he said, those are true Hoosier fans. You know, that for he said, next time in town, invite him to practice. Invite him to come to practice. Okay, so this is um, six months later. I'm in town to, I mean, I don't, I don't even, it doesn't matter why, but it was, it was the first month of practice. So I, I called up Joby, said, yeah, come on down. Coach, I'd love to meet you and so on. So I walk in and, and I and I sit and of course three managers run up. You have to sign your name and there's like a couple of other people in there. But those those practices were so tightly closed and yes. I mean nobody was allowed in. Just like your character in the movie, we don't that's let right. we don't let people in practice anymore. That's that's right. That's right. So I I would uh, he would Coach Knight would would look up at me and give me the evil eye, and I mean he was like. He was like frowning at me. He was like, he was like, he hates me. Why does it? Why is it? He's he heard something about me that it, it, I, I was I was completely puzzled. And then um, I was going to ask Joby. I don't think he wants to meet me. I think he's angry at me. I think he's really pissed off at me for some reason. I don't understand. And um, and and Joby disappeared. 
So uh, I, I didn't know what happened to him. And, and I did not feel comfortable walking down on that, that stadium because, I mean, on the floor. And so I, I left. And then I was chased down by a manager. Coach Knight wants to see you. Okay. <laughs> so I go down on the floor and, he's, and I go and I stand right next, close to him. He's talking to somebody else. And he looks over at me and he glares at me <laughs> like he's really going to punch me out. I mean, I, that, I'm not exaggerating. He's doing, a, he's doing a number, okay? He's clearly, I'm not misinterpreting this, all right? And, and I didn't know what it was about. And he finally turns around and I said, hey, coach, really nice to meet you. And he reaches his hand out. And I think he's reaching out to shake it. And I reach out to shake it and he knocks my hand away. And he goes, and it's like this, it's flat. He says, you owe me money. I said, so what? He said, all of the dialogue that you use, that's mine. <laughs> and then he put his arm around me and he said, oh, yeah, you, I'm, you know, great movie. I've seen it twice. You know, oh. like, uh, it was like, it blew my mind, but it was, <laughs> it was typical coach night. But is that the first time you ever met him? I had first time. Yeah, oh. first time. Okay, so let me let me just follow follow up on what happened next. Next, so he says, "So what are you doing right now?" I said, "I'm going home to have dinner with my parents." He said, "No, you're not." Uh, he said, "We're going to we're going to scout a, a kid in Chicago. You're coming with me." <laughs> so I get on the IU alum plane with Bob Hamill and and Coach Knight, and I spent the next ten hours in conversation with coach Robert Montgomery Knight. If you don't think I was in heaven, but wait, I was did, like, this is one of the greatest experiences of my entire life. Did you think as you talked to him, was any part of your brain going, I'm talking to coach Norman Dale? Like, did- No, I didn't do that. Okay, I, I, was, okay. I, I know how to separate facts right. from reality <laughs> from fantasy and yes. What was that like? What were those 10 hours like? They were so compelling in so many different ways. But uh, one of the things that people don't understand about him, and I think that there is, the, the misperception is he's a, a, a raving lunatic, uh, that, uh, um, that he's a pontificator, uh, uh, you know, a know-it-all, egomaniac, all those things. Uh, but I'll say two really specific things that go against that. Number one is, that the only time people really see him or notice him or are, are aware of him, if he's on the sidelines of a basketball game or in front of a camera. Well, that's not his life 99% of the time, right? Mm -hmm. And I went to practices where he never raised his voice. He taught, I mean, I, I used to, I, I was, I could go to any practice after that. That was, you know, one of the great perks, uh, by the way. And, um, but the other thing about him is he's doesn't pretend to know everything. He's a very, very curious person. Mm. Believe it or not, he asked me hundreds of questions about my career and about how he made Hoosiers. He wanted to know everything behind it. He's just, and that's one of the, and then we connected to history, as you mentioned, Ward, and we started talking. I think we, we spent two hours talking about the Russian Revolution, you know, and uh, it was like, every, as I said, every time I'd raise a basketball question, he would just ignore it. And, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's talk. But he did love baseball. He really wanted to talk about baseball, you know, love and he, he was close with Tony La Russa and Roger Maris. And uh, 
So it was, it was just, he's extraordinarily intelligent and very well read. And, uh, and, and it was just a great experience. And we really bonded. And, you know, I subsequently was invited to go on road trips with the team once a year. And I did that for, for, for many years until one year. And I don't know if we'll get to the story, but one year it was uh, so insane that I thought I could, I, I couldn't do it anymore. It was just, we're going to uh, get to that. I was like, we're here now. We yeah, can let's just, just do it. Let's, let's just, just do it. All right. So this was, this, this is actually a pretty famous game. All right. And this was uh, up at uh, Minneapolis. All right. And uh, mm. this is, uh, this was the game where they lost by 52 and, and he deliberately tanked the game. Okay. Yep. Um, it was, he was in a really bad mood when I arrived. They had practice on, on they, they had just squeaked by Northwestern and Northwestern was the you know worst team in the big 10 and, and they weren't playing well. And, and it was like a combination of reasons. Uh, uh, and I, I don't even know the specifics. I mean, Dan, Dan Dockage was assistant coach then and, and Dan and I were friends. So um, we're still friends, but uh, he he would he would say just keep clear coach Knight. he's just like he's on a bender he's like he's all pissed off about everything and and uh um so i mean he interacted with me fine but he was he was just in a bad he talked about a black cloud yeah. uh, he had one over his head the entire time and and uh that was a sunday game and we flew up on saturday and we had a really fun time we all went we went out with bud grant the old uh, uh, vikings coach yeah had a really fun dinner and you know spun a lot no, i didn't spin any stories but they spun a lot of stories and uh night was in you know rare form and he was in a good mood the day before the game or the day of the game it was a one o'clock game we had to we had a film session that i got to be part of i got to be part of everything where um, that we would sit down, we watched, we were watching film of, of Minnesota. And um, he was uh, just in the foulest of moods. And he was watching Boshan Leonard. This is, I'll never forget. Boshan mm. Leonard hit three after three after three. And he just said, God, if we had anybody could guard, you know, we wouldn't have a problem. He said, oh, we, we play terrible defense. He terribly goes. I remember Norm Ellenberger was there and uh, he turned to Norm and he started screaming at the top of his lungs. He said, you're great at getting people who can put the ball in the basket, but nobody could guard anybody. What's wrong with you? Recruit somebody who can defend for the first time in your fucking life. Or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so, trying to keep my language clean here, but no, you don't have to, not for us. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So, uh, so uh, it was like, uh, all right, I'm done. I don't want to see anymore. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think I, 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 I so then there, then there was a walkthrough. The walkthrough was in the hotel we were staying in. And um, it was in um, a, a banquet room, okay? And he was, uh, he said, okay, here's what they do. They run a double screen up here. They'll get you know, a screen. They'll, you know, they'll, 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 it's all about getting Moshan open in his favorite spot here in the you know, corner, in the elbow. And... Uh, and, and they, he walked him through, walked him through, and he, he, he turned and he looked at him and says, I can't stand looking at your guy's face. You make me all sick. And he, he turned and he walked out. He, and so that's when I think Ellenberger came in. It was his game to scout. Mm -hmm. So Ellenberger came in and did the rest of the walkthrough. So we, we go to the game. Um, the, I don't know if it's the first three, the first five minutes or whatever, the first three or four shots, they run that double screen, Boshan, three, three, three. 
he started, I think Damon was the first guy I mean, they pulled off. Uh, and then, then he started taking one starter after another, after another, just to, if they did one thing wrong. I remember Alan Henderson took an 18 foot shot instead of, a, he was only allowed to shoot up to 15 feet and he got shoot. I was on the bench and he said, you know, you know what your range is, you know, and then finally he didn't care. He just, he played his five worst players. It was, I think Richard Mandeville and his son, uh, Pat, were the players of the game for India. <laughs> I know Pat was the leading scorer, which was right. uh, the first and only time that ever happened. Wow. Um, so what happened next was uh, probably the reason I, I, I didn't want to ever do this again, which was, uh, I remember he had to go and do the press conference uh, and I didn't want to go into the locker room after the game. All right. But it turned out coach Knight didn't go into the locker room after the game. And I, I was talking to Dan about, and Dan told me, he said, you might want to fly commercial back. You know, <laughs> it was like, it could be really ugly. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm like, I'm like nervous. I'm like really started to, you know, sweat and, uh, my stomach started nodding up. I, it was almost like I, I screwed up out there. You know, right. you know, and, uh, and, and of course I knew I wasn't going to do that. So we all got on the bus. Everybody's on the bus. We wait on the bus for half an hour and he get, walks in. He's got that boater hat on, got some magazines. He sits down. He doesn't talk to anybody. We go out to the tarmac. Uh, where the it's the old uh, alumni or the 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 uh, uh, IU Foundation plane, and it's set up that two of the seats are facing forward and all the other seats are facing. So it's him and one of his buddies. I can't remember his name. His name is George. Doesn't matter. Are sitting forward, and the one thing that I never really thought about or was warned about was everybody when they they. He didn't leave the plane. He sat in the front seat where he always sit, uh, didn't leave the bus. Everybody filed out and they made a sprint to the plane because they all wanted to be as far away from him <laughs> as possible. And nobody wanted to sit in the death seats right across him. But when I got on the plane, that was all that was left. Cool. So um, I had to sit right across from him. I was petrified. I was shaking. I thought I thought he was going to start yelling and, and screaming at me. Uh, or his, his energy, you know, was going to be too much. So he gets on the plane and um, <clears throat> the plane starts to move and he sits down and he picks up one of these magazines. And I'm, I'm of course, I'm looking away. I'm not engaging him at all. Yeah. And, and his hands start to shake, <clears throat> literally shake. And he starts to, to tear, tear the, the magazines and his clan, his his jaw starts to clench and, um, uh, and he finally, it explodes, it's, it's, it's Mount Vesuvius, okay? He finally explodes, he stands up and he goes completely wacko on every single player on the plane. And I thought, I, I swear I, he wasn't gonna leave me out. I thought he was gonna chew it, but it was, it, was, it was bad. It was, and it went on for 15 minutes the plane had to stop, you know, because it was not that big a plane. So the the pilot was like mid stuck in the mid tarmac, you know, <laughs> and the, or the, the the you know whatever the path was to go the to the runway. runway. Yeah, um, and um, and uh, I remember thinking I have to breathe. 
okay, because I, there's no more oxygen in this plane right now. <laughs> it was like, and, and uh, he sat down and the plane finally took off. By the time the plane was in the sky, he was sleepy. That's, that's, that's what that guy could do. <laughs> but I got off the plane and I was not right. Okay. And I was like sick to my stomach. I was like, you know, and I think I, I, I can't do this. I, I, this is too much. I can't do, I, I could never go through this again. Right. It, was too, it was too stressful. So <laughs> that, that was, uh, that wow. was my, that's how that ended my, my, uh, my road trip. Games. Wow. Well, it sounds like a spectacular run, and I'm guessing you would still get back to Bloomington, get to practices. It's not like you you dropped away no, from the program. No, not at all. Not not yeah. at all. No, I I did. I, yeah, we maintained our friendship, and uh, when I would go back, we would go out and have dinner or lunch. And yeah, no, no, I just didn't make uh, the arrangements for going on road trips. It was uh, too harrowing. I want to go back to Hoosiers for one moment more, if we could. And that's to talk about, you know, there's so many pieces that have to come together for a movie or a TV show, but specifically a movie for it to be right. And it's obviously, you know, there's the classic line, you can make a really bad movie out of a good script, but you can't make a good movie out of a bad script. It's like, right. it does start with the script. So you have right. the script, the script is good. But then the, all the other things that can make it bad, one of the biggest is casting. And the most important role in this movie is the coach. I mean, it is the center of the movie. How does Gene Hackman get that role? And when he got it, did you have a moment of, this is just absolutely incredible? Were you unsure of it? I'm just very curious how Gene gets that role and what you're position was in all that okay so this we have to go back to when, when the script was finished and uh we brought it to uh and, and i brought david in that we were going to do this as, as a team and we, we we sent it to our agents with creative artists um at the time and uh the both of our agents said this is a this is a cute little of uh, uh just uh um, uh, regional film. You should go uh, independent regional film. You should, uh, studios are not going to be interested. There's no lo compelling log line. I don't know what the poster is. You know, that's, by the way, that still, that still exists that yeah, way. Of thinking. Um, yeah. I mean, if you reduce Hoosier's story to one or two sentences, it sounds kind of cliche and banal. And um, so we actually did go back to Indiana to try to raise the money and and Mel Simon had a, a, a big, a, a really important uh, and, and a thriving uh, film production company. Yeah, he made Porky's and, uh, and a number of other successful films. And uh, his, um, his, uh, his daughter, Diane Simon Scott, who uh, is named, uh, Assembly Hall is now named after, um, she was head of his development. And, and mm -hmm. we, we met with her and gave her a copy of the script. And... Uh, she never returned our calls. She never called us back. And um, I found out later from what somebody worked with her that her response was that she liked the script, but she didn't think anybody outside of the state lines would be interested. So mm -hmm. there was a lot of that. There was a lot of, you know, thought it was like, you know, great for people in this in, in Indiana. Even the same way of thinking happened at our studio, Orion. That they, they were they had an overall deal with the, pr the production company that financed us, Hemdale, 
um, they didn't want to release a film. They didn't think it had any legs outside of Indiana. So we were just trying to figure out how to raise money. And it just so happened that David um, Anspaugh had been working for the Aspen Ski Corporation as a ski host and got to know, and he would, he would uh, take care of celebrities when, when they came to ski there. And he got to know Jack Nicholson really well. You know, Jack always called him and, and he would cut him in for lines and he helped teach his, uh, Jack's daughter how to, how to ski. And, wow. uh, and so we knew that Jack had made a movie that he directed called Drive, he said. Drive, he said, it's about a small town uh, basketball or a small college basketball team in Ohio. Mm. And we knew Jack's passion for basketball. And, and, uh, and, and we said, well, let's figure out, maybe he can help turn us on to some money. Maybe he can help figure out that he did it and, you know, he could figure out. And, and so uh, he said, and I had known him, we had been invited to some parties up there too. And, uh, and so we were invited up. Uh, I remember it was on a Saturday and uh, said, come on up and, and, uh, and talk to me about it. And uh, so we got up there uh, at noon uh, I remember, and he was still in bed. And and here's here's a here's a name dropping thing for for film aficionados. Um, Bernardo Bertolucci was sitting by the pool with two young, beautiful French actresses who were in the pool without any clothes. Okay, it's like a it's like a cliche of what right. you would think uh, would be happening at Jack. It was clearly post party. It was like you know the next day, uh, people still there. And Bernardo was staying with Jack. They're working on a movie together. So uh, finally, about, we were there for like an hour waiting for Jack to wake up. And, and, and he said, okay, uh, he wants to see you now. He didn't come out. So he was like, stay he was in his TV room. That's when they had big projection televisions. And he was like just flipping through the channels. And he was like making comments on all these. I mean, Jack is a brilliant guy. And uh, he was just riffing. Uh, and it was fascinating to listen to. But he finally turned to us and he said, uh, why are you guys here after all, you know? And he said, oh, do you remember Jack? We talked about, we wanted to help, you know, raise the money, you know, we explained all this and, and uh, what it was about. And he said, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Uh, and uh, so he said, yeah, go put the, the script, I'll, I'll, I'll get to it, but go put it there in the alcove on your way out. And so we go to the alcove, there's a pile of scripts like this high. <laughs> And, and Dave and I look, we're driving each other. Well, that was that, I mean, this will never go anywhere. It was, I don't remember. We have, we have a point of difference about how, I think it was two months. David thinks it was like three weeks. He gets a call from Jack and David calls me. David is crying. He is like literally crying. He said, Jack just called me. And the first thing he said, hey, I just read your script. It's really good. I'll do it. He thought we were giving him the script to be the coach. It was like, it was like, holy shit. Are you kidding me? Jack Nicholson wants to play the coach. Jack was the biggest star of the time. And uh, all of a sudden it became creative heart artist, hottest script. Okay. And um, we went into this long negotiation with Jack to do the script. And the problem that we ultimately faced with him was that um, he was in a lawsuit with MGM about a picture that was canceled twice um, because both uh, uh, directors of, uh, one was Marty Ritt and the other was Richard Brooks, uh, died in pre-production 
and they and the MGM canceled it and did not pay him. You know, it was, they had a pay or play clause. So ultimately, he was in a lawsuit. He couldn't work. You know, because we were right there in the sweet spot of prepping mm. the film the summer of whatever it was. It was 1982, I think. And um, uh, so, uh, uh, and then he 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 finally came to us. He said, "I'm going to miss this window." And and next year uh, I'm doing uh, I'm doing the sequel to, to Chinatown, the two Jakes. So I, I'm com I'm committed for that whole year. I'm not going to be available for you know three years. And you got to shoot in Indiana. You got to shoot in the fall. He said, take it to Duvall or Hackman. They'll be great. You know. Mm. So mm. Duvall kind of set off. I said, yeah, Max Sledge. You know, the whole thing about tender mercies. Mm. And David had known Robert Duvall's best friend Wilford Brimley because he did a bunch of commercials with him. So we arranged a meeting and, and, uh, and Duvall was like, you know, he's, oh, he was so complimentary with the script. He said, you know what? It feels like, uh, it feels like I've done this part before. <laughs> he said, he said, he said, it feels like, uh, it feels like a combination of, uh, of, of, of Tender Mercies and the great Santini. Cause you know, he, it was basketball and Santini. So he said, take it to Hackman. And so Hackman was the third guy to read it. We gave it to, to Gene and Gene said, yes. And, and we, we just had a brief meeting with him. He didn't really say much. And we said, then we thought, okay, we're, this is a slam dunk. We're going to get this movie made. We submitted this as a package to everybody in town. And it was turned down by everybody in town. Nobody. The, Warner Brothers was interested only if we replaced David I, and I was the owner and producer and there wasn't a chance that that was going to happen. And um, so for two years, it languished with Gene at a tide as a, we couldn't raise to get the money. To, to, it, it was then another producer came in, Carter DeHaven, who co-produced this with me. And Carter um, uh, got a... Um, a gentleman he thought is, you know, an interesting kind of, it was British renegade. Okay. He was, he was a guy that not very well educated, came from the Lower East Side of, 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 uh, of London. And, um, but he was an intuitive, smart guy in a lot of other ways. He was kind of a hustler. In fact, he had a pool of laundered mafia money that he was using to make movies at the time. My dad who grew up in Sicily, never got over the fact that, that, that Hoosiers was financed by laundered mafia. <laughs> so, uh, so, so he, he was, he, he read this script. And by the way, our whole plan for getting this movie financed was to get it to people either from the Midwest who love Indiana or love sports, love basketball, so on and so forth. We, we got nothing from any of those people. The guy who said yes had never seen a basketball game in his life. He had never heard of the state of Indiana, but he cried almost all the way through the script because he was a soccer player. His father was an alcoholic who would show up drunk and walk out on the pitch. And he's so connected to that shooter boy son relationship that it killed him inside. He said, I have a rule. If I ever cry a script, I'm going to make it. Mm. And, 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 and that's how we got it financed. And, and, and he ultimately said, 
I got to tell you, I know nothing about making movies except writing the check. You, you go out and do it. He let us make the movie we wanted to make. That was the great thing about it. So we had no oversight, none. We had a number, a budget, and that was it. I've never had that experience before, or I mean, after, before or after, uh, you know, to make a movie without oversight. Now, here's, I'm going to throw one last thing in since we're talking about the coach. He didn't really like Hackman you know, for some reason. And he, because Gene's, Gene Starr was really kind of uh, ebbing, uh, you know, he had this big French connection thing and then he became the lead actor. He, he was like the leading role of seven movies that just tanked. Yeah. And so no one was hiring him and, and it was, he was in a bad place in his life. And, um, you know, people thought he was a character actor who finally got leading, you know, role status and just failed. So uh, he was, this guy sent the script to Burt Reynolds. Now, Burt was the biggest star, right? Yeah. The one thing yeah. about Hoosiers that was amazing to me and that, that, that made it happen was every actor read it wanted to do the part. And Burt read it and he wanted to act and he wanted to do it. Now, Dave and I did not want Burt because Burt was at the height of his winking at the camera. That was in the Smokey and Bandit. Yeah. So yeah. he was in, a, okay, we're all in on the secret. I'm just playing a character and we're making a movie and... You know, yeah. it was so, it wasn't acting. It was like, it, it was, uh, you know, uh, boging. I don't know yeah. what it would call, but yeah. uh, it was, uh, it, it, it was just not authentic. You know, he wasn't acting from a deep place. He was, do, was just doing, he was doing fun stuff. And uh, <clears throat> Bert was always capable of doing good work. And he showed that, you know, in, in, in a number of different movies. Deliverance was one and, and uh, Boogie Nights was another. Yeah. But, uh, I, I will uh, so but we were for, we were told we had to go and meet with him and we and this was this was uh, I, I here it is <clears throat> this is how much we wanted to make Hoosiers the right way and we knew so much we knew in our bones that that Bert was the wrong guy and we knew we'd get the movie made but um uh we didn't want to make that movie so we went over there planning to to bomb it you know, to basically uh, make sure that he uh, doesn't uh, doesn't want to work with us. But we had to be nice, you know, and polite. So, you know, he picked it up right away that because he's so used to, we, we met at his house, you know, and he's so, guys like that are so used to people being uh, obsequious, solicitous, you know, yeah, please don't do anything. They'll dance fast as they Bonding. can. Yeah, the, 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 you know, putting on max sales uh, pitches. We weren't doing any of that. You know, we were just saying, so do you, do you have any problems with the script? Uh, you know, anything you, any questions you have? And he was like kind of thrown off and get, so we got into the kind of discussion about this. And then I don't know what got into David. I, I, I think this was just, I don't think he meant to say this, but um, he said, um, you know, every your last three or four movies, uh, you know, in this last Smokey series, you've been accused of winking at the camera while acting. He, Bert went nuts. <laughs> he, he, he stood up and walked over to David, put his thumb in his, uh, his finger in his chest and said, yeah, I want you to step outside. I'm going to knock the shit out of you. For <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, so mission accomplished. <laughs> this is the, mission totally accomplished, and 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 um, you know it it, it it we talked our way. So it was it was it was 
we left on a good note. It wasn't really, it, we weren't kicked out there. It didn't mean to make it sound that right, dramatic. Right. But, uh, but that was our way of finally getting to Gene. You know, he just ran out of uh, people to send it to. Well, and then when you get to actually making the movie, and it's not like you had all the money in the world and, and you're shooting back in a state with no natural resources for, for production. I'm just wondering, a lot of times, great script, great cast, you and David clearly know what you want. Um, but like, d did it feel, was it special as it was happening? Was, was that thing when you got to set every day, did you're like, yeah, this is working. This feels like it's working. Or, or was it more chaotic and stressful than that? It was all chaos and all stress. I, I never felt confident. We never felt confident that it was working. Um, did we not re recognize that there were some good moments that were happening within scenes? Yes, I mean, we watched dailies and we thought, you know, this scene might work. Um, this character might work, that line might work. But you never know. I mean, we had enough experience. I, I had more experience with feature films than David did. You can have great dailies and put them together. And it just, it's like a souffle that doesn't rise. It just right. doesn't all mm -hmm. coalesce. So uh, we had, and also you have to remember, even though I was in a supervisory role with a number of these films, I wasn't making decisions. Right. I wasn't the people, I wasn't any of the primary creative forces that were making decisions. I was just observing and 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 trying to create a support system for them for the people who were doing it. We were at we had no in, in many ways we didn't know what we were doing, and uh, so we were just try, trying to figure it out as we we went. We were scrambling, and we had all sorts of problems. We 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 had I mean this was the most stressful movie I've ever made. It was in so many different ways because we knew we had our careers riding on it. We had the goodwill we of Indiana people. We knew we if this movie bombed and we didn't get it right, we would never be welcome back in the state again. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, the responsibility wasn't just for our careers. It was much bigger than that. And uh, so uh, uh, we, we, it rained like, every, it felt like it rained every day. We had a, you know, a lot of sets that were supposed to be outside, inside. And if you'll notice, because the weather was so miserable, the palette is very dark in many ways. It's very gray and brown. Yeah. You know, and mm -hmm. and and that's because we couldn't find ever find sunshine. And, and <laughs> I always thought it was part of the aesthetic. <laughs> well, I, it turned out to work perfectly in that way. Okay. Um, I do, that's part I, of the serendipity. I do want yeah. to ask this. You in reading about you, um, look, you you and Ward could talk for days and days and days about film. And and I know you were a film buff growing up and you all, from what I read, you really responded to the big epic movies, the Ben-Hurs, the Lawrence of Arabias. I, I have always been obsessed with Godfather, one and two especially, and I know that you have a, a fondness for those as well. There, there's great Hollywood lore that anybody associated with the Godfather, mostly the actors, but anybody associated, if they go to Little Italy, since that movie was made, they never pay for a meal. Yeah. And I'm just curious, after Hoosiers became what it became, what is it like for you to be in Bloomington after that, in Indiana? Now, granted, you're behind the scenes, so people don't recognize your face as much, but Correct. Indiana's a big, small town, and they know who you are. What Did your life just, just change on how people reacted to you? 
Well, uh, yes and no. Um, I mean, I, I, I maintain my core friendships and th that those didn't change that, you know, and, uh, and the people I met, they, what they, they when I, I wouldn't come back here that often. I remember, you know, I lived in Southern California until 2005. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I was working in Southern California, or, you know, going up to South Bend, we made Rudy. <clears throat> and it, it, it it, it uh, I was invited to go to uh, to speak at a number of different functions. I was invited to play in celebrity golf tournaments, and people were always very, um, you know, thanked me and both David and I thanked us and congratulated us. And but it, it didn't fund them. You, you're talking about going to Little Italy. Nobody picked up my checks that I remember <laughs> when I went out to eat. You can't I'm go to Little Zagreb's on hey, the house. We, we, we would always go to St. Elmo's and uh, we paid every time we went to St. Elmo's. So <laughs> it didn't change that much. Got but it. You, you do have to feel this gratitude and appreciation from all of us who love Indiana basketball that you you created a piece of art and you told a story that we can forever point to, to anybody who doesn't understand what we're about and where we came from and be like, watch this movie. This captures the essence and the love and the passion and the drama of what it's like to love basketball in the state of Indiana. You you feel that, right? You you understand we all are so grateful for that gift you've given to the world. I I do hear that uh, uh, quite a bit and it's it, it's much appreciated, but I have to create uh, some sort of context for you to understand how weird it is in in this way, which is uh, that this movie is 35 years old, okay? And, uh, and the the fact is I remember Gene Hackman, who, you know, Gene was a problem working with. He was <laughs> he, he just, that's the nicest possible way of putting it. <laughs> he hated every minute he was in Indiana. And he kept on, he, he I mean, he had challenged David constantly and, and wanted to fight him. And it was, it was just, it, it was, it was one of those those times where he would just say, you know, uh, the first three weeks were the most miserable three weeks uh, of the entire shoot because he reluctantly showed up. I remember the first time we came, he came on the set of uh, we were doing the barbershop scene and um, we were doing the exterior first. I, I, I'll get to one of the interesting things about the movie is our first cut was three and a half hours long. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, but 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 lined so up with that. that we, have a ton of, we have a ton of stuff that would never made the movie. One of them was a whole exterior scene outside the bar shop before we went in to shoot that one, that's in the movie, and he went berserk. He thought, "What the hell have I gotten myself into in this amateur night in Dixie production? This looks like <laughs> fucking dog patch." This is like, whatever. Where's Little Abner with his overalls? You know, it was like. It was like, this is what my career has come to. You jokers. This is pathetic. Everything about this is pathetic. And uh, that's what we had to deal with. And uh, it, it was, he almost quit a number of times. And, and, and it, Dennis arrived on the set after shooting Blue Velvet. And he was, Dennis was everything that, uh, that um, Gene was not. Uh, which was, uh, he was, 
he was one year, one and a half years sober after, you know, being in and out of uh, rehab for 10 years and <clears throat> working for the first time along with David Lynch's movie. And uh, he was very vulnerable and very sweet and very kind and very supportive because, you know, the dentist directed, uh, you know, Easy Rider, Rider. of course, and, and yeah. other films. And uh, he knew the business well. And uh, he got what we are trying to do and what we are trying to capture. And, uh, and remind me to tell you one of my favorite uh, Dennis Hopper stories about uh, a famous line in the movie. Um, and, and, uh, and Dennis actually got Gene to smile for the first time in three weeks. Mm -hmm. When they were sitting on, next to each other, when he was this, that time when he was assistant coach, who was mm -hmm. all dressed up, we yeah, yeah. scenes. There was a lot of sitting around, but he, there was, I mean, Dennis was so funny and he got Gene to laugh. It was the only time that Gene started loosening up. And Gene was, by the way, great with the kids. He mm -hmm. really worked for those kids because in a way he was in a survival mode. He did think that we weren't, didn't know what we were doing. In many ways he was right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he didn't want to be embarrassed. And that's the one thing that actors fear is the being, you know, having, uh, having a director who, who don't, doesn't protect them. Right. So it, he wanted to make sure that the kids were as good as they could be. So he gave him many acting lessons, really. He worked mm. with them on the side. Um, at any rate, um, the thing that Dennis said, or that Gene said to me after the last shot, and I remember exactly the line, um, but uh, we, we went up to him. It was at the Hinkle Field House, or, mm -hmm. you know, after the last shot and the scene. So, and he was getting on a plane, flying back to LA, and he said, uh, he said, well, he said, listen, you know, um, uh, I, I, I have to be honest with you. Uh, when I get on that plane, uh, I hope by the time I land, I'll forget this, this ever happened to me. Oh, my okay? God. <laughs> so, so he, <laughs> he said, now, you know, you, you, you boys, you boys probably, you know, are going to be, uh, have a nice, you know, your friends and the people here in Indiana are going to like like this little movie and, and have fun with it and and maybe it'll be okay you know for for you know it's like my whole like we were talking about like it was a home movie yeah <laughs> said, but this will this will this will end up uh, like like 99 of movies in the dustbin of film history uh and 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 uh that was that was the last thing he said to, to us as he left <laughs> what a sweet guy he was right so uh so, so the reason I bring that up, and I want to continue with Gene just in a moment, but the reason I bring that up is Ward, and, and uh, um, we thought the same thing. We thought, well, Gene knows what he's talking about. This probably, and most films do end up in the dustbin of history. You know, it's like uh, all of my friends that were, were writing scripts at the time or making movies, their movies, you know, maybe pop up here and there occasionally, or they don't, uh, whatever. And we thought that would be pretty much who, even if we had success with it in our release, even if we got released, it would be forgotten in two or three years. So the fact that it, it has sustained the way it has, as someone pointed out, they did this Associated Press poll last, last fall and, it, and we're still number one. Yeah. How did that happen? It was like, it's mind boggling. I, we, so it, it, when you say, do you hear these things? We've heard these things for 35 years and we still don't get it. I mean, we still don't understand <laughs> now, how this now, could have happened. <laughs> I, I have to know though, 
have you ever at any point been able to get in touch with Gene? Well, that was the one I was going like, to follow. Yeah. I was going to follow up. I did. I had to complete the thought, uh, yeah. that first thought. Yes, please. So we knew the rest that we knew we had to see Gene again because we were going to have to loop. You know, we knew there were a lot of sound problems with, with crowds and everything sure. wasn't going to get through. And we had a day looping session. And this is what we got back from Gene. He had to see the movie before he agreed to do it. Oh, okay. He did loop. Otherwise, we would have to find a sound live actor. Okay. Mm. So we were nervously waiting for his, whether he liked the movie or not. Okay. And all we heard back was, okay, he'll do it. And uh, so I remember how nervous David and I were in a recording studio when Gene shows up. He goes up, doesn't say a word, goes up, shakes both our hands. He said, I don't know how the hell you did it, but it turned out pretty damn good. Wow. <laughs> wow. How now, good did that feel? Yeah, it felt great. And, and he did everything was asked of him in marketing. So we went on the road. We went, we did our... Our, our tour in Washington DC with him. He asked, he did every interview, could not have been nicer. He was like a different human being. And on top of this, this is the final kind of like coup de, I don't know, coup de gras is not the right word, but uh, you know, the, uh, the cherry on top of the cake of these, this story line. And that was, we saw an interview with him about, I don't know, 10 years ago, whatever like that. And somebody asked him, when people see you, this is right before he retired, when people see you on the street or go up to you, what is the one character they identify with you more? And the guy gave him a leak, it's probably Popeye Doyle, right? He said, no, it's Coach Norman Dale from Hoosiers. Yes. So, so that was sweet to not, hear. Not bad for Dog Patch. Not bad for Dog Patch. <laughs> yeah, we came a long way from Dog Patch. Yeah. All right, give us, we, we've taken up almost two and a half hours. You're definitely... We're doing a part two with you because we have so much more to cover, but we want to button this one. Tell us the Dennis Hopper story about a, a famous line in the movie. Okay, so uh, people ask me about, where'd you come up with this line? Don't get caught watching the paint dry, yes. all right? And uh, I said, I didn't come up with that line. Uh, I, I had written something else, you know, uh, or I'd not written anything else. I can't remember what it was, but he's going through and designing the picket fence and, uh, Yes, the picket fence was my invention. I just kind of made that up. Yeah, I just thinking about how you stack, you know, different yeah. screens on top. And um, so um, I, I did, I probably had a cliche line. I probably had some line. I got to go back and look at the scripts. Uh, but um, because I, someone asked me about this before and I forgot. And, uh, and we were, uh, the one problem that Dennis had was he had done so much, so many drugs, alcohol, he wasn't firing all the synapses were not working. A lot of uh, memory problems. He could never remember his lines. He worked at it, but he could just never remember them. So he would, a lot of things would come out that were not part of, of it. And it was in that scene where it was like, we were, we were watching the mid video monitor. He says, okay, boys. And then he, I, we seemed struggling for to get that one line. It was just, it was just a cliche coaching line, you know? Don't get caught watching the paint dry. And I remember Dave and I looking and said, what the hell does that mean? Where did that come from? <laughs> so, you know, and, and uh, we go over it and Dennis go, oh, sorry, I, I couldn't think of the line. I, and he said, but what, but the lot, what, it, what is, what does it mean? I said, you, you know, my dad used to say that to me all the time, you know, and it was like, uh, 
you know, I think it, I can't, re I said, I'm not really sure what it means. I said, well, I kind of like it. <laughs> oh, there it is. That's Happy part of accidents. the serendipity of making movies, right? Yeah. And now they're there. I see t-shirts with that. Yeah. Line, line mm -hmm. up. I, I mean, Angelo, I, you know, before we end here, I want to read a quote that I found uh, that you had said uh, about what you, what you responded to about Indiana and basketball. And you said what you found interesting was the unique fabric of basketball in Indiana, how it's interwoven with the culture and the meaning and importance of basketball. And I, I read that line and was just, it, it like encapsulated everything to me. It is the fabric of basketball in Indiana is interwoven into everything. I mean, it just is, it's interwoven into barbershops and meals that you have with your family. And even if you're at a little league game, it's like basketball still finds its way in. And what you did with that movie Hoosiers, like Ward said, is you gave the world the ultimate love letter to your home. I mean that, and, and it defined I said this at the beginning, it defined what it meant to be a Hoosier for me more than any national championship that we've had, more than any game, more than any single player. That was Indiana. And I make my kids watch it. They love it. We bring it up with all these young recruits that we talk to. We, there's a couple recruits that one of them didn't even know about it. So we've got him on board with his other recruits uh, Tamar knows about Hoosiers. Miller Cop loves it, so he's gonna sit Xavier Johnson down and show him the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's so, his it's his summer assignment. <laughs> I just look, right. man. W w you have to agree to do another part with us. Will you do a second? Oh, absolutely. Part? We okay. just scratched the surface. We 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 love you. We love what you've done for Thank Indiana. You, it's just it's beyond words what you have meant in the formation of what we are as people, honestly, and what that movie meant to us. Well, that, that really means a lot to me. I very much appreciate those words. Thank you so much, Eric. Well, and both as, as your love for IU and the game of basketball and for what you've done in this industry, which it's no piece of cake to come out here and do what you did as a small town Indiana kid, you are a huge inspiration. And thank you for not only the example you've led, but for coming here and giving these wonderful stories. And it's just so fun to to not only hear these stories but to be inspired by them like the next few days i'll be floating on cloud nine so thank oh, you thanks ward i appreciate it thanks angelo be good don't okay. get caught watching the paint dry and uh and and i i mean just i i can't wait to listen to this one back the burt reynolds story <laughs> nicholson story they're just all so good they're just all so good uh we will be in bloomington this you know summer fall and we got to get together and have dinner. I'll be here anytime. Sounds awesome. good. Great. Uh, Take care, Angelo. Wait, wait, wait. Right. I do have one oh. more question. I forgot. I got to ask this. Uh-oh. Okay. So I'm running for trustee of Indiana. And one of your players in the movie Hoosiers who played Raid is running also for trustee. Are you aware of this? I was not at all. And, Steve, and by the way, Steve is a good friend of mine. He's a dentist from Warsaw. I know okay. you got to throw that all out. I right. need the endorsement from you over him. All right. So, so here's here's the uh, I I will and and why I'm going to endorse you instead of him. It's simple. He did not go to Indiana University. What That's, is that true? No, I didn't know you could. Wait a minute. Don't, did he go to one of the other campuses? Yeah. Did he do no, another? He went, he went to DePaul. 
but did he go get his graduate degree or doctorate? He might, he might have. Oh, he, he, he went to IU Dental School. That's how, but oh, see, okay. that doesn't count. That, that doesn't, doesn't count. count. No. There you go. <laughs> He's a DePaul guy. All right. There we go. There we go. You heard it from Angelo Pizzo. Nothing yes. else matters. You All got right. my vote. You got my board, Eric. Yes, thank you. We will be in touch about a second part. Thank you again. Thanks for taking all this time. We really appreciate it. All right. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Take care, bud. See ya. That was a guest. That was a guest. That's everything. Like to, to me, like that's everything right there. That's that's, that's your the, life. That is the Hollywood Hoosier. He is the man, and he did what we always fantasize about doing moving back to Bloomington after taking over this town. Yeah, I mean, mind blown. I mean, the stories, the love, the Van Arsdales, Walt Bellamy, Coach Knight, practices, planes. I mean, it's just Burt Reynolds fights. I mean, like, <laughs> it's just mind blowing. And and the life that he has lived and the circles that he has traveled in and all that matters to him is getting back to Bloomington and Mike Woodson bringing success back to Indiana University basketball. That is what Indiana Hoosiers are. It's like, you're like, God, we are so crazy, both for the life we've chosen to live out here and the fanaticism for our school and our teams back there. But then you see a guy like that and you're like, well, Maybe he's crazy too, but at least we're in good company. Like a man who has followed his passions and we didn't get into it, but I know he was thinking about becoming a lawyer when he left IU and his father encouraged him to do something he was passionate about. And there is the role model, at least for myself, as to a guy who just went after the stuff he cared about the most and has been wildly successful and completely immersed in it as far as the IU stuff goes, because he got to go on road trips with Coach Knight and the Indiana Hoosiers. That's it. Ward, he chose to stay home and watch the championship game in 1987 instead of going to the Oscars, where his movie had two nominations. It is, that is it, like you said. That is the definitive I'm the biggest Hoosier there has ever been. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. We can no, we should all try, but we're never gonna do that. No, oh, man. I, I love the guy. I can't wait for part two. We gotta get into Rudy. We gotta get into just how it changed his life, that movie and his career. Um, I I wanna get into the end of the Bobby Knight era and what that meant to him. Sure. You know, and 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 what he kind of has seen from afar and, and from up close, because he's been there since 2005 also. So he's been through the end of Davis, the Samson, the Cream. I want to get his perspective on all that. What an incredible storyteller. No shit. That's the thing, right? He's a professional storyteller. And to, to, to share all of those incredible memories, anecdotes, personalities, in in such an incredible way like this this is one where i do think whereas dane it's just sort of this crazy journey into the heart of darkness when you talk to dane for hours and hours on end this is a guy who can just hold you under his spell because of not only the life he's lived but the ability he has to communicate it i i love it i love it i love it i mean one of my favorite ones we've ever done it was so incredible um and again, like, I just can't get over, like, 
So Jack Nicholson wants to do it. You have your meeting at his house. You're waiting for him to wake up. Burt Reynolds wants to do it, but you don't want Burt Reynolds to do it. So you take oh, it. Oh, wait. And Duvall, don't forget, they had to jump yeah. Duvall. Yeah, Duvall's in there. And then you land on Gene Hackman. And yet he's like in the weeds of watching body language of the coaches on the sidelines for Indiana basketball. And that's what gets him going, like in talking about it. It is the cocoon of Indiana basketball. If you do not get it, well, you aren't listening to us if you don't get it. That's, <laughs> That's true. true. That's true. Um, I, I loved him. What what a what an absolute treasure to have as a Hoosier. A treasure. My hero. Yeah. All right. We will see you next time. Please. Uh, do you want to do it? Follow us on Twitter. Uh... <laughs> what is your I'm, problem? Well, now I'm just obsessed at watching you going. Is he going to do it right? He's big. Uh, uh. <laughs> Try again. Go. Follow us on Twitter at Hoosier Hysterics. In the hysterics, use the I and the E, but not the Y. You did that on purpose. <laughs> you had to have done that on purpose. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm just going to make it my own now. I, nobody can do it like you. Follow Except us on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. At Hoosier Hysterics for the hysterics, no E, no I, but the sometimes why? Don't get caught watching the paint dry. My team's on the floor. Who's your man to lead us? Who's not a total dud? Who's your brother bleeding? Crimson blue blood. Who's your man demanding what you want and more? You gotta get us back to the final four We got to vote for Eric Man for you and me We all trust in Eric Future trustee If you wanna see the candy stripe Back in the promised land You best just vote for Eric Cause no one Cause who's your man? Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.